Hey guys, this is Cody Turner. I'm just going to jump right into the preamble here. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my friend Philip Barron. Philip is a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Connecticut and, among other things, a professional poet. And here we have a wide-ranging conversation about all things poetry. We begin by discussing a paper that Philip wrote, which I think is going to turn into his dissertation on poetic meaning, in which Philip provides a conceptual analysis of poetic meaning and specifies how poetic meaning differs from other kinds of linguistic meaning. After that, we chat about Philip's own poetry, and in particular, his book, What Comes from a Thing. I read and really enjoyed the book, and I actually read some of my favorite poems from the book on air, and then have Philip say a few words about each poem. There's going to be a link attached to this podcast that you can go to if you'd like to buy Philip's book, and I recommend that everyone do that because it's some great poetry, and it was a great conversation. So without further ado, I present to you, Philip Barron. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. All right, and we're live. I'm here with my colleague and friend, Philip Barron. Philip, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. This sounds like a lot of fun. I've listened to several of your podcasts. I enjoy the format, the conversations you've been having, so I'm honored to do one of these. Yeah, we've been talking about this since the end of last spring, yeah. and we're finally coming together to make it happen. Well, that's the nature of graduate school, right? Is <laughs> we have a lot of great plans for things we want to do outside of class, but the reading schedule and writing schedule often dictates when we can actually do those things. Exactly. So we're going to talk about your work, your poetry book, what comes from a thing, and some of the philosophy stuff that you're doing with respect to poetry. I thought we could begin by just having you say something about what your philosophical interests are as they stand, and maybe just briefly describe your intellectual history. Sure. Uh, And you can be as brief or as non-brief as you want. (laughs) Okay. So I've been interested in philosophy for a long time. I mean, I guess poetry, too. Um, You know, going back to some of my earliest memories of of things that I enjoyed reading. Um, I would say growing up, I was always a reader. Uh, I know that it's in part because my mom was an English teacher. um, And so she had a big influence on, you know, exposing me to books early on, exposing me to better literature early on. And so I gained an appreciation for those things. Didn't get to study philosophy till I got to college, though. And but as soon as I did, I just knew that that this was for me. Mainly, it's focused on the the big sorts of questions, um, but also on just the general strategy of conceptual analysis really appealed to me mm. as a way of making sense of of anything, but in in a broader sense, making sense of the world around us. Um, what is conceptual analysis, just for the listeners? Well, I, I think that to be the primary tool of analytic philosophy that is uh, taking a concept and breaking it down into its constituent parts, um, trying along the way to figure out what the essence of a concept is. So uh, we do that by finding what are its necessary and sufficient conditions, what are its um, ways it's been used. Um, so. I, just, I take this to be a rather rigorous and systematic way of, of 
breaking down any concept that you want to that you want to study to figure out what its components are, what its necessary components are, and then what its um, components are that are different from the way that the concept is being applied. Because mm. oftentimes, without conceptual analysis, we run the risk of being confused about how something is used as opposed to what it actually is. Right. So conceptual analysis involves kind of ridding a concept of its inessential elements. And as you say, kind of analyzing the concept so as to break it down into its fundamental constituents. And I know we're kind of going off on a tangent, but one of the objection to that is you can do that from the armchair and it doesn't involve any empirical investigation to the right. world necessarily. But it does align with the conception of philosophy according to which philosophy is about asking, finding out what the right questions to ask are, right? Because if you engage in conceptual analysis, then that can be completely clarifying. And you can suddenly see that the way that you were framing the question was misinformed because you're operating with this uh, overly vague notion of whatever concept you're employing. Yeah, good. Uh, So I raised it in in uh, response to your question about my own introduction to philosophy yeah. because I found conceptual analysis to be a very useful tool at the time when I was in college and it still is you know as you said it's very useful for some things but I think you're also right to say that it um, relying on it too much can make us miss the fact that we're sometimes asking the wrong questions Mm. about a subject and this will become relevant in the course of this conversation because uh, what I've started out doing so far with with my own work on philosophy of poetry is trying to give an account of poetic meaning and Mm -hmm. to do that I'm I'm giving kind of a conceptual analysis of what poetic meaning is or what I take it to be what all of the possibilities of what it can be that's true yeah in my head what I said we were going off on a tangent just now but I thought it was important because conceptual analysis plays such an integral role in western philosophy but it is actually related intimately related to what you're going to we're going to talk about because as you say you're performing a conceptual analysis on poetic meaning right and I've already gotten to the point where I feel like Perhaps I'm asking the wrong questions <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about uh, about poems and what they mean. And so um, this is a good time in the development of my own work to be having this conversation <laughs> because yeah. I'm trying to figure out what all to bring in next. Well, hopefully you'll have just a fine-tuned vision as to what your dissertation proposal is going to be yeah. by uh, the end yeah. of this conversation. That sounds great. Before we I'm get there... To do that. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get there, I thought we could... Just finishing up on your intellectual history... So sure. you initially went to a PhD program yeah. when in your younger days. Not, <laughs> yeah. not to say that you're old, but <laughs> how, how old are you? Uh, 42. 42. Okay. The answer to life, the meaning, and everything. But right, right, under, right out of undergrad, you initially went to grad school to get your PhD in philosophy. Right. You got your master's, and then you decided not to go through with the PhD. Could you just That's walk right. me through that sure. process? So I did this a couple times. Uh, <laughs> I started college in one place and took some time off, finished college in another place. Um, I finished up at UMass Amherst and got to work with great people like Gary Matthews, Vera Chappelle, Ed Gettier, uh, Lynn Baker, Eileen O'Neill, Phil Bricker, and just had a great time there learning um, both how to use these tools like conceptual analysis, learning for the first time about this continental analytic divide within philosophy, 
learning also from some of the people I work most closely with that that's a very silly divide and that we need not pay much attention to it and be conversant in both sides of that divide. Uh, and But I spent a lot of time there working on ancient Greek philosophy with Gary Matthews especially and uh, was pretty convinced that that was going to be my trajectory was to go on and, and get a PhD in ancient Greek. And so I did... I, I, well, at some point I got a, I earned a scholarship while I was at UMass that allowed me to stay for a, another year after the baccalaureate was done. Hmm. So sometimes that's called a post-baccalaureate year, and it kind of covered tuition and those expenses. Um, and so I did another year of graduate work, or a first year of graduate work there, and then during that year applied to PhD programs and, and was admitted to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And How old were you at this point? Uh, this was 2001, I was born in 76, so I was like, I don't know, 20 something. Yeah. Um, did I do the math right there? Yeah, 24, 23, 24. Starting Carolina and was most excited about that to work with people like um, David Reeve, CDC Reeve, as a best known for his translations and, and work on uh, Plato and Aristotle and did some good work with him uh, with Tom Hill and Jerry Postema on um, political and ethical philosophy and then I think because I had done five years of college a post-baccalaureate year and went directly into PhD program I was just sort of burnt out on philosophy for a while but perhaps, apropos that we're recording this today on September 11th, um, yeah. I was also very affected by the September 11th, 2001 attacks. Um, I remember you telling me that last year. You talked about this. Yeah. Uh, and so that happened the week that my graduate school career at Carolina started. And it produced in me sort of an existential series of questions about why am I doing this? What's the point of studying philosophy in a world where something like September 11th can happen? Mm. And I struggled to come up with an answer for that. You felt like you kind of needed to do something that had a little more practical consequence? I don't know about that as much as I felt like my worldview was was very circumscribed mm. at that point. Just made um, you question what you were doing on right. an essential level. Yeah. I certainly didn't feel the need to, um, you know, join the military or become a legislator or anything like that afterwards. But, right. But it, it did produce in me uh, a lot of questions that I had a hard time answering, and I think that that got in the way of, of really enjoying my time at Carolina. And so, after two years at Carolina, I just took the master's degree that I had earned and left to go work. I mean, it helped that I also had a nice opportunity to go work with an institution called the National Humanities Center, um, which is an institute for advanced study for humanities scholars from around the world to come and spend a year on sabbatical and just spend their time doing research. Uh, I was hired at the time to build them a wireless network. <laughs> wireless Wi-Fi was brand new. Right. And, and uh, we were trying to figure out how in the world does the internet go through waves, go through bricks, things like that, without wires. 
Um, I still have no idea. I don't it? really understand it, it either, like but I knew how to build the networks, and that was the crucial <laughs> thing. Um, electricity is still magic to me at this point, yeah. but um, you know, at the fundamental level of how it works. Did you seek out the Humanities Center, or did that opportunity find you? Kind of both. It kind of it, it evolved. It started out as just um, a side gig in the summertime, um, paying a little extra money to help. I helped them organize their influx of applications, which were all still paper-based at the time. Uh, they have 32 spots available each year, and they would get over well over a thousand applications to you know, from scholars from around the world to you know to have one of those 32 spots. And that was just a lot of paperwork, especially since the incoming applications often had to be copied and sent out to multiple readers, and then those multiple readers' scores had to be um, collated and, and brought back in to you know, make the final rounds of judgment. And so really, all I was doing was just a lot of boring office organizing work at that point. But I liked the people I was around. I liked the goal of the center. I liked the feel of it. And... Um, apparently the feeling was mutual they liked me and so they kind of created a position for me to stay around uh, and work mm. with them full time and that was great because there you know I spent what was it seven years working for them it was a chance to be exposed to some of the greatest scholars in the humanities from all different fields uh, and it was also a good chance to see what philosophers were doing to keep up, you know, to keep a pace with um, changes in, in the humanities in general, especially changes that were being brought upon by new discoveries in science. Uh, Where is the center based? It's in Durham, North Carolina. I mean, it's technically in an area called Research Triangle Park, but that's kind of like saying Stores, Connecticut. It's, the, it's a, a zip code around a place that has no town. <laughs> um, so Research Triangle Park is just a subset of Durham, um, southern Durham, North Carolina, Northwest um, Wake County, or uh, yeah, Northern Wake County, which is where Raleigh is, and so it's it's right between um, Durham, Raleigh, and a town called Cary, Chapel mm-hmm. Hill is much farther to the west. But it's a. Um, I love Durham, by the way. The town. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah just for the it. listeners, without Philip, I wouldn't have had the Duke TIP experience or Duke TIP experience that I had this past summer, you are the one that put it on my radar. So that was an example of an opportunity finding me more so than me seeking it out. But I'm so glad that that worked out. It was great. Thank yeah. you again. Duke is a great, great program. Um, yeah. It's a fun way to spend a summer. And Durham is, is an awesome place. And I um, always look forward to spending more time back in Durham. I love so many good hiking trails. Yeah. In the vicinity. Yeah. That I discovered, uh, you know, River State Park and and Duke I think Forest. I went to that one. Yeah, Duke Forest. I ran there. That's yeah. a great one with the golf course. Exactly. Right in the middle. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, lots of great hiking there. So at the Humanities Center, you were interacting with scholars that were a part of many different fields of the humanities: philosophers, right. English professors. Exactly, historians, literature professors, we had anthropologists. Occasionally, we had creative writers like poets. Uh, for the most part, they were not there as poets as much as they were there as scholars or critics of poetry. Um, we had a couple of people engaged with like art criticism, like David Carrier was there for a while. Um, I'm trying to think, over the seven years that I was there, there were various conferences, and those conferences were good opportunities to bring in. Yet, you know, even more people who weren't there for the whole academic year, but were just 
that are there for a week or several days. Were you still planning on returning to philosophy at this point really when you were working? No, I really saying? wasn't. I, I kind of um, put that behind me and was focusing more. I was very interested in what was called the digital humanities at the time. I mean, it still is, but it was kind of an emerging field back then. The digital humanities being a way of figuring out if there a series of attempts to figure out if we can enhance humanities scholarship with computational tools that allow us to do things that traditional humanities scholars can't do. So for example, can you do a very quick analysis of all of Shakespeare's texts to see how many times he used a particular word? Mm. Prior to the age of computers? No, that, that would take a lifetime to count up all of the words that he used and then come up with some sort of grid that shows you know, statistical analysis of how often he used certain words. Mm. In the age of computers, sure, all of his texts have been digitized and so you can very quickly see when was the first time that he used a certain word, how often did he use a word, um, might that be evidence of some influence on him from some something he was reading, something he was aware of? Might that be evidence of how important a concept is to him, depending on how often that word comes up? Um, so that's one way in which humanity scholars are learning enough about uh, digital tools and learning especially how to code to learn new ways of doing their own traditional forms of scholarship. I definitely see how that could aid humanity scholars, but couldn't it also put some scholars or people out of work who might have been paid to decipher text before, but now they're completely useless? I mean, obviously this is a general trend that's transpiring with technology, just the process of automation displacing workers. Sure. Is um, that true in the digital humanities as well? I guess it d depends on what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that it that it actually has done that as much. I, I, I guess the way, the way I think of the digital humanities is when it is done right, it is always about enhancing what the traditional humanities has always done. Right. And to me, that means that it expands the possibilities, not just for scholarship, but for employment too. Mm -hmm. So you now have centers of digital humanities that employ uh, code writers, that employ... Um, people who are interested in the humanities, but maybe with, with only a BA or a master's degree, um, mm. who want to stay involved in the world of humanities scholarship and research, um, but don't want to be the scholar leading the project, so they don't want to be uh, either the PhD or faculty member who's, who's leading this sort of thing. You can think of it as an analog to mm. the way sciences have labs, and there's always a, a PI who runs the lab, typically the faculty member who's gotten the grant or who's conducting the research. Mm -hmm. And then there are lots of people employed within the lab who contribute to the research. Digital humanities centers around the country often call themselves labs nowadays, on, kind of based on that model, okay. as a way of figuring out how can we bring in the skills and specialties of more people to fall under the, um, you know, the, the guiding the guiding eye of, of the, the PI, the principal investigator, or the, or the faculty scholar who's conducting or directing the research. And then that way the faculty member who's a specialist in, say, Elizabethan you know, literature doesn't also have to be a specialist in PHP or SQL or some other programming 
or database language. Instead, they can you know work with people who serve a broad number of faculty members in, in the humanities from the university, say, and get you know bring those experiences to, or bring those expertise rather together. Is there a particular aspect of the digital humanities that you were really interested in, or what what about that emerging field attracted you the most? Just the concept of opening up different co- occupations for people who want to be involved in the humanities that wouldn't otherwise be able to be involved? Yeah, I think some for part of it, it was I was, get, I was getting interested in, in um, learning and writing computer code at the time. And I was interested to see what I could do. Since I was somebody who, who kind of straddled those worlds, I could understand enough of what was going on in the technology world to know what was possible, what what sort of tools were there that we could use, and I was also familiar enough with trends in the humanities to know uh, what was going on there. And so I often acted as an intermediary, bringing together um, people who were more expert in writing code and heavy computational power uh, at places like, um, it used to be called RENCI, um, I forget what it stands for, but it was a a supercomputing institute, an independent supercomputing institute that served um, the University of North Carolina and offices um, in Research Triangle Park. Um, so I was the intermediary who could talk to both the technology people on the one hand and the humanities people on the other hand. And Sounds like Steve Jobs. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I, I just finished the reading his biography. From it. <laughs> yeah, but just the concept of lying at the intersection of technology and art or humanities. That's one yeah. ethos that I got from his book. Right, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's it a seems good like a good place it. to navigate yourself. I, I hesitate to um, accept the comparison in any way to Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, but point taken. <laughs> New I, Steve Jobs. I, I think that a lot of times... Just that concept, I was saying. Sure, and I think that's right. I think a lot of times uh, new fields are born from people who don't feel comfortable in, in, two, you know, in existing fields. Mm-hmm. And so they figure out some way to straddle them. Um, and so I think that's probably where the digital humanities come from. If you, know, if you talk to some of the earliest people who were working in, these, in the field, um, they would say the same. That um, I don't know if this falls under the rubric of digital humanities, but I'm definitely a fan of the concept of digitizing the humanities that's part of the motivation for this this podcast just making philosophy which is a part of the humanities accessible to a more general audience like i see all these professional philosophers that are publishing these amazing papers in professional philosophy journals and sometimes the reach that that paper is going to have is not that wide you know only I don't know. It depends on the paper. It depends on the journal. But in some cases, it might be only 30 or 40 people working in your sub-subfield that are actually going to sit down and read this paper that you've devoted so much time into and are now putting out to the world. But with digital mediums like podcasting and other things, you can spread your ideas to such greater audience not to say that I have a large following as of now because I definitely don't but I have at least 40 people that are listening to each episode now you know so that's already a broader reach than I would have (laughs) if I was publishing something that's not to say that absolutely I'm against publishing obviously I want to do that but there does Mm -hmm. seem to be some stigma against public philosophy 
or trade books, for instance. Sometimes yeah. I get the impression from people that they don't regard it as genuine philosophy or like real research. You know, in order to make real a real cutting edge difference, you have to publish something in an actual professional journal. And that might be true, but I feel like you can do real philosophy and make a real difference by appealing to a broader audience and not just sure. people in your specialty. Yeah, uh, two things come to mind in response to what you just said. One is I'm happy that we're in a department, you and I are in a department where people do take that um, trade publication or you know, aiming at a um, public philosophy audience more seriously, right? So Mitch Green's new book, Know Thyself, is a good example of uh, taking the problems of philosophy of mind that revolve around selfhood and writing it in such a way that it can be accessible to a general audience. Uh, Susan's writing a book then, right now. Too. Exactly, Susan's book was the other one I was thinking of. Um, can you remember the name of it right now? I can't. The Future of Mind? The, yeah, The Future, the future of, mind. of Mind. Right. Um, so taking, again, philosophy of mind and um, issues around artificial intelligence and brain enhancement and writing them in a way that they'll be accessible to a general audience because... I think in both cases, these are issues that are of interest to a general audience. Absolutely. Whether anybody's ever been exposed to a philosophy classroom at a university or not, people have had questions about themselves, they've had questions about their personal identity, they've had questions about the function of the mind, they've had questions about whether or not they are identical to their minds. Uh, yeah. And they've had questions, especially if you watch any science fiction nowadays, about what's going to be possible in the near future when it comes to artificial intelligence or the possibility of implanting microchips in your brain that would allow your brain to communicate with a larger network of computers or just enhance regular brain activity. Um, it seems like often when we read a science journal or trade magazine that we're already living in that world of science fiction. <laughs> I know. Where what, what's possible is, is changing the kinds of questions we ought to be asking ourselves about who we are. So I think it's great. We're in a department where we've got people who do take that seriously. But to your other point about the costs of digital publishing, I think that's what was so radical about the you know explosion of Web 2.0 and, and the development of online publishing tools is that it re essentially reduced what used to be the biggest cost of publications to next to nothing. As long as you have a computer and you have access to the internet, then you can create a, a blog, often for free, mm. where you can upload files and distribute them. You can write what you want to write and have it read by an audience that can reach it from anywhere around the world. And whereas that distribution cost used to be, or it still is, the highest, one of the highest costs of the traditional publishing platform uh, when we print physical books or physical journals. Right, the um, subscription costs and purchase prices for books often primarily goes to the distribution costs. Hmm. When you publish in an online format, you've eliminated those distribution costs. Yeah. And so that's part of what's so revolutionary about online media and its opportunities for publication. Yeah. There's. <laughs> I'm going to avoid going down a rabbit hole because okay. I want to get back to. <laughs> Because I, I, I can see this huge rabbit hole opening up, and sure. I want to explore it, but I also <laughs> want to get to your book, too. Okay. Um, okay, well, I guess, so just quickly, what led you to get back to philosophy? 
you're at the humanities center and now you suddenly right. at some point have a revelation that you want to get go back to grad school and get the phd what motivated that change uh, it wasn't quite so simple um as much as it was it had more to do with what we were just talking about with i felt like i was the kind of person who was occupying a middle space between different worlds between the humanities world and the digital world yeah um, one of the things that that helped me see is that i'm someone who feels rather comfortable in these liminal spaces these spaces between um, between two different worlds and I think that when, so after leaving the Humanities Center, I moved out to Davis, California for a while. And while I was living in Davis, California, still working on digital humanities works, um, I felt like I wanted to take my interest in poetry more seriously and decided to go back to school and get an MFA in poetry writing and uh, was delighted to learn that I had been accepted to San Francisco State University, where I knew that they had the Poetry Center there in the Poetry Center and San Francisco State University had just long been part of um, what I took to be the late 20th century avant-garde movement in poetry. Mm. San Francisco, just as a, a, an epicenter for poetry and taking literary uh, production seriously anyway, but San Francisco State especially because of its long-running history with um, like I said, with avant-garde poets, and then inviting a lots of poets to come through the Poetry Center. The Poetry Center had already started using digital tools such as these to make recordings of their poets as they would come through. Mm. And so they have just an incredible archive that goes back to the early 1980s, as far as I understand, of video of poets coming in and giving readings, but uh, an audio archive that goes back even farther, I believe, to the 1950s of, you know, people as, you know, as, recognizable as Allen Ginsberg uh, giving poetry readings. So I was happy to start working on poetry more seriously, especially in a place that just that itself lives and breathes poetry. Uh, but while I was in school at San Francisco State is when I started, when a lot of the philosophical questions that I've had um, about literature, about uh, the self, about personal identity started uh, raising their head again and the book that you read uh, what comes from a thing is a collection that came out of thinking working through some of those problems and trying to give uh, a poetic take on some of the philosophical questions that I've always been interested in but especially those questions about liminal spaces and how to occupy a middle point between between worlds um, so was it in the process of starting to take it was in the process of starting to take poetry more seriously that these philosophical questions started to occupy your consciousness more and more on a daily basis yeah okay. yeah and um although the idea of you know going back to graduate school again thinking about that while i was already <clears throat> in, in graduate school seemed daunting um, <laughs> right it did i did start thinking about it again and so uh in the last year that I was at San Francisco State finishing up the MFA is when I started thinking seriously about going back to school and, and doing the PhD in philosophy. How long is the MFA? MFA is three years. Uh, it's considered a terminal degree for the creative arts. So a few years ago, they did not have PhDs in creative writing. Now they do have PhDs in creative writing. And there's still a debate within the um, creative writing world about 
what's the need for whether there's a need for PhDs in creative writing, <laughs> in part because the MFA was the terminal degree. <laughs> um, Where do you stand on that debate? Should well, there be a PhD in creative writing? You know, I, 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 all I can answer is from my uh, personal decision-making process, and that is I faced this question when I was finishing the MFA and thinking that I still wanted to study more, that I want to go, go on and get a PhD in creative writing. And ultimately I decided no there, because instead I wanted the disciplinary rigor of philosophy, mm. and I wanted to see if I could bring that to bear on poetry, mm. rather than engage with literature and in only a creative productive way mm -hmm. yeah i feel like i have a similar mindset as you in terms of wanting to dip my toes in a bunch of different mm -hmm. intellectual worlds yeah. and kind of com then combining those worlds and internalizing those worlds so as to produce something original like i'm, I'm very interested in that i don't want to like obviously i want to do philosophy but i right. want to actively engage in other disciplines and maybe even outside of academia, right? Uh, comedy, whatever. Mm -hmm. And yeah, mix that up. I don't know. In general, I just don't like... And do you feel pressured not to do that? No, I don't feel... Pre well, just in philosophy. Yeah. In a way, sometimes, because a lot of times... I mean, I haven't been in grad school that long, but there does seem to be some pressure to find what you're going to research in philosophy and then become a mini expert in that thing right. and when you're writing on that you're trying to be as narrow as you can right you want to narrow down and make this very small albeit novel contribution to this one specific area right. and that process of narrowing down your research focus in a sense inevitably entails you narrowing the scope of your attention so you can't pay attention to these other things that right. you would normally want to pay attention to so i have felt sure. that a little bit yeah do you think that's a thing yeah i i do <laughs> um, <laughs> i mean it's definitely a thing I, I do think it's a thing it's funny one of the things that interests me is how exactly do how exactly does pressure like that get communicated yeah no one's ever said to me explicitly you should not care about that other thing you care about you should care only about philosophy mm. and yet you can go through your graduate school career believing that that pressure is there. Oh, yeah, you, you can care only about what goes on in philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, it is. It's kind of an energy that just exists in the department because you can feel other grad students and professors, just the, I don't know how to characterize it, the, the, the pressure and the necessity to write and to publish and try to get ahead in the philosophical game because right. in the philosophical game you need to publish if right. you want to try to get a job I mean you know how hard it is to get jobs right. in the philosophy world right. so but explicitly people will say how cooperative we're you know we're, nothing's competitive we're all just right. encouraging one another and you should feel free to do what you do but there's this kind of implicit pressure that I feel and it might not necessarily be a bad thing it might, might be a good thing that acts as a motivating force to get me to work, but sure. I don't know, it could potentially be uh, bad in terms of, like we're saying, restraining your focus and diverting your attention away from things that maybe you should pay attention to, right? Maybe that interest in other areas will have some positive effect on your philosophy, as you right. said. Right. But 
Let's get to your book. That's, sure. that's cool. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say in terms of what motivated you to go back to philosophy or no, your intellectual well, history? No, I think... I don't want to cut you off prematurely. We've talked about a lot of it, um, but I think finding a place that would allow me to work on poetry, given that that's my specific interest, but would also um, help me bring the disciplinary rigor that just comes with you know, a good philosophy department to bear on, on looking at poetry was the real challenge in figuring out um, where to go next. And I feel lucky to have found you know, Mitch Green and Lewis Gordon and Susan Schneider uh, and other Bill Like and other people I'm working with here mm. who are well-respected within the discipline of philosophy, especially for the contributions that they've made within philosophy. Yeah. but are also open, open-minded, open but also open and trusting of me enough to know that I'm going to be able to bring you know, the, the tools of philosophical analysis to bear on something that is um, traditionally ignored, Yeah, <laughs> like poetry. <laughs> do, you, do you consider yourself a poet primarily or a philosopher <laughs> primarily? Do I have to choose? <laughs> <laughs> or a stupid question, move <laughs> no, on. No, uh, uh, not a stupid question at all. But I think, uh, I, th- I think again, that just reinforces my sense of comfort with um, liminal spaces, right? my comfort with in-between spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to choose. I love, I love to read poetry. I love to, to write. I love to go to poetry readings. And I love to talk with other poets because other poets are often the most bizarre, strangest people, and you can have the best conversations with them and the most fun on weekends. <laughs> I love to talk to philosophers because they're some of the most intelligent, insightful people I've ever met, and they're able to very quickly sum up lots of complicated details uh, about something that seems like a, an intractable problem, and then offer you know an alternative or a solution to it. And so... And going back to what we were just saying about being interested in different disciplines, a lot of times these conceptual boundaries that we erect between different disciplines, they don't actually exist out there in the world. (laughs) Like, as we know from philosophy, there are so many different ways of carving up the conceptual landscape. So we have this idea that there are these different disciplines. There's math, there's poetry, there's philosophy. But these don't correspond to the way reality actually is. In reality, everything is unified. Knowledge is unified. Right. The entire world is unified. So yeah. we're always existing in some sense in this in-between space. Absolutely. So it, I think it, it, you know, it's beneficial if we can become more, more and more comfortable with that. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I agree. I know I keep going back and forth. I think disciplinary boundaries are what produce the very rigorous methods of analysis that allow us to make real contributions to knowledge. Right. So. I don't want to say that, that disciplinary boundaries are, are, are not useful either, but I think you're absolutely right that those, we often act in such a way while we're here in a university setting as if those disciplinary boundaries are, are somehow fixed and real. Yeah. And that ignores both the history of how those disciplines came about. I mean, psychology was once a, once a branch of philosophy. Now it's another department. I don't even know where it is on this campus. Yeah. Um, but... It also, in addition to the history that it ignores, it also ignores the way in which our lives are, are fluidly moving between what would otherwise be disciplinary boundaries in the university, but out in the real world, there, those boundaries are artificial if they exist at all. 
Yeah, and just talking specifically about the philosophy game, it's kind of paradoxical because oftentimes the best contributions made in philosophy are the result of not working within the established conceptual paradigm and figuring out a new conceptual paradigm. So yeah. you're kind of stepping out of the disciplinary boundaries and creating right. something new. Yeah. Those are the most revolutionary changes. But in order to even get your foot in the door, you need to work within that disciplinary paradigm that's already been established. Right. So you want to be, and, and it, like this is something that Mitch Green said last year when I was new to the department. Being a professional philosopher is largely a matter of being an intellectual entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And I like that analogy, Yeah, you know, because you, you want to be completely unconstrained in your thought and have the ability to transcend any conceptual paradigms that are implemented upon you while respecting those paradigms. And the flip side of being an entrepreneur is that you're all, you take all the risks. You're the one responsible for the for the failures as well as the successes. Yeah. There's certainly a lot of failures. <laughs> All right, let's get to your paper. Sure. That's okay. Yeah. So I love this paper. You said this is called Poetic Meaning for the listeners. That's because it had to have a title, but yeah. I liked it. Okay. It, it, it suited. Good. I view you, and I just have some notes here, but I, so I view you as giving a philosophical analysis, conceptual analysis of poetic meaning. And as you know, so it's like, there's this spectrum of semantic ambiguity mm -hmm. that you hit upon. And we were talking about this the other day. But when it comes to philosophy, ambiguity is shunned and frowned upon. You want to be as precise as possible. You don't want there to be any lack of clarity in t interpretation. Then so that's on one end of the spectrum. In the middle of the spectrum, you might say that there's ordinary language. In ordinary language, there's some ambiguity that's tolerated. But for the most part, we're trying to be as direct and clear as possible. Then on the far end of the spectrum, there's poetry, where ambiguity isn't only tolerated, <laughs> but it's cherished. Yeah. Right? That's what you're going for. Yeah. So this suggests that the semantics of poetic meaning are going to operate differently than the semantics of other kinds of linguistic meaning. And your project here in the paper is giving a precise philosophical analysis of what poetic meaning is. And as you argue... Poetic meaning can't just be identified with the artist intentions, or what you might call poetic speaker meaning, and it also can't be specified by appealing to pragmatic context. So poetic meaning transcends both the artist intentions behind the poem right. and the context. And you think that there's this personal significance that is intimately and necessarily bound up with poetic meaning. Yeah. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for doing such a close reading. I mean, it's... Um, Trying to be precise here. I was just talking about doing philosophy with Lewis this morning um, about how people like Roland Barthes, Paul Ricoeur, are very comfortable with the idea that um, texts are produced by authors as well as readers. That the meaning of a text especially is something that is that is um, obviously on the one hand produced by an author and has a lot of the author's intentions wrapped up in it. Mm. And on the other hand, um, that the meaning of a text is often decided by the critics or decided by the readers. So to that extent, I appreciate you doing such a close reading yeah. of this paper to help yeah. me figure out uh, what all is going on here and what all I mean by meaning. Um, I thought we could start. so. 
And you emphasize the role that personal significance plays in contributing to poetic meaning. And you start in your paper by giving this personal antidote of um, the experience that you had with losing your best friend and how you brought that personal experience to this William Wordsworth poem. Right. Could you maybe say something about that personal antidote and how it ties in? When I was 15, um, I learned that my best friend had been killed in a car accident. And... um, like 15 year olds everywhere around the world I was full of hormones and full of lots of different kinds of emotions and it was difficult to make sense of all of those different kinds of emotions and several months um, since his funeral had passed and uh, while there was still a, you know a strong sense of grief there were there were days when I didn't really even think about him at all I had you know was in stu- was in school. This was sophomore year of high school, and um, was caring about other things like basketball and and swim team practice and all kinds of things like that, and the normal things that a teenager cares about. And yeah. then there was one day when I, you know, got some good news. I don't even remember what it was, and I started walking to his house because I wanted to talk to him. And it was halfway, he, he lived, you know, four or five houses down, and it was halfway to his house that it, that it hit me, that he wasn't going to be there, you know, that, that somehow I had gotten on with my life in such a way that I blanked for a second that he was gone. And just the, the, the guilt that I felt over yeah. forgetting uh, his death for a few minutes she call in the paper you call this the deeply human paradox about grieving. Yeah, that there's this paradox about grieving that has to do with how, uh, on the one hand, we move on from from grief only by um, by letting the routines of our daily life come in. On the other hand, um, when we well, how did I put this in the paper? Um, you say time is a healer, but the very fact of the dimming of grief by time makes one feel guilty, as though it impugns the genuineness of the love. And I've definitely, I related to this immediately yeah. when you were talking about this in the paper, because I experienced the same thing with my breakup from my girlfriend. I was in a pretty serious relationship in college for like okay. two and a half years. Okay. And we broke up about a year ago now. And I experienced this deeply human paradox about grieving, because it's kind of like... You know, I went through the natural process of grieving, got all the emotions out, and just like you begun to live your life again and not think about your friend every day, I was thinking less and less about Veronica every day. Suddenly I wasn't crying over her every single day. I wasn't completely fixated on her every single day. So you might call that first order grief. As the first order grief diminishes, there's this kind of second order sadness that increases. And that second order sadness is a recognition that this person, well, in my case, it's a, it's a recognition that this person is returning to the status of a stranger. Right. They're, they're returning to that place that they occupied in my life the moment before I met them. Right. Right. And this is, a person, this is a person that I had become closer to than any other human being. Yeah. Right. I mean, to like the most intimate moments right. of your day when you're usually alone. Right. I'm with this person in the shower, right when I wake up. So I get closer with another human being than I've ever been before. Yeah. And then there's this process of growing apart. 
and again, returning to the status of a stranger. So that process of returning to a status of a stranger is great in that first order sense because I'm not fixated on Veronica on a daily basis anymore, but at that second order level, it's extremely heart-wrenching. And now then you get over that as well. Then there's then the second order grief starts to diminish as, as well, and now you've completely exhausted your system of all possible emotions. You know, you've gone through the full yeah. <clears throat> like logical evolution of grieving. Right, right. But anyways, when I was reading that in my paper, I really connected with it on a personal level because of that. Yeah, and, and I think that... So the, the, the connection to poetry is that um, when I came home from realizing that, that I had forgotten that my, you know, my friend had passed away, um, I read Wordsworth's Surprised by Joy. Mm. I don't know what that says about me as a high school student that I would just come home and, and read poetry. <laughs> but... Um, Whatever. Uh, it, it was just something that I did sometimes, you know, for, for comfort. And um, William Wordsworth, Surprised by Joy. Yeah, Surprised by Joy. And it's a poem that he wrote about a, simil- a similar incident where he uh, turned to share some moment of joy with his daughter, and, who, his daughter who uh, had passed away in infancy, and the guilt that he felt immediately over forgetting the fact that she was gone, forgetting the fact that she was dead. Right. Um, was something that, in a, in a strange sense, comforted me to, yeah. to, to see in a work of art, to see in a, you know, a work of literature, that someone else's emotions can be as complicated and messy as mine were at the time when I was 15. And so that, that demonstration of deeply complicated emotions was something that I wasn't getting from anywhere else. I mean, I, I wasn't getting it from from my friends or the adults around me or the, even from the teachers who I had in school. Um, you just kind of needed that outlet and you found it in poetry? I mean, it, it, was, it was validation in a sense. It was validation that this messy <clears throat> mix of feelings that I can't really make sense of or that can't be put into some rational box were not just okay, but they were made okay by someone like Wordsworth, you know, someone who's respected. Not just okay, uh, but beautiful. English language. And then, right, and on top of that, like you said, made beautiful yeah. uh, through the poem. And so that meant that at the moment of reading it, right, that poem had this special personal significance for me, as you said. Yeah. And the fact that that personal significance has stayed with me, I'm arguing, becomes part of the meaning of the poem. <clears throat> Uh, and so I know that what I'm, what I'm ultimately arguing here about this mixing the, the meanings of, of semantic meaning with personal meaning or personal significance, mm. uh, I know that that entails that what I'm bringing into this is that the poetic meaning is going to be something radically subjective. Yeah. Uh, that I know that that's prima facie something that a lot of philosophers of language will want to resist. And the burden is going to be on me then to build the case, build the argument that says, actually, that uh, personal significance has got to factor in to some analysis of what, what a poem means. Right, because that is the flip side, right? Someone could say, well, yeah, of course, there is this personal meaning that you attribute to a poem. But if you're talking about the actual semantic meaning of the poem, the personal meaning is independent of that. The actual semantic objective meaning of the poem, one might argue, 
is just whatever the poet or the artist intended the meaning to be. So maybe, so in a lot, in a lot of your paper, you spend some time arguing that poetic meaning is not synonymous with artist intention, right. as we've already discussed. Right. And in accomplishing that task, part of what you do is distinguish between uh, speaker meaning and natural meaning. Right. And this is a distinction that comes from the philosopher Paul Grice. So right. I was wondering whether you could prop up that distinction and then uh, explain why you don't think poetic meaning can be reduced to poetic speaker meaning. Does that make sense? Sure. Uh, so the, the natural, non-natural distinction, as, as I understand it in, from Grice, yeah. has to do with how there are many different ways in which we use the word mean. When we say things like smoke means fire, uh, clouds mean rain, or even <clears> when we say things like the, the fact that Madison Bumgarner broke his finger in spring training means that the San Francisco Giants will have a slow start to their, to their baseball season. Right. What those, na- what those ways in which we use mean are pointing to is the causal relationship between between various items. So, um, smoke means fire means that there's a causal relationship between fire and smoke. Mm. Uh, clouds mean rain means that there's a causal relationship between um, between raining and, and clouds. Mm-hmm. Mm. I forget the headline that I found, but Bumgarner's break means more work for Giants bullpen is a way of saying that um, because their star pitcher broke his finger, there was a causal relationship between uh, his breaking his finger and um, the ha- having to you know get more work out of the other pitchers for the San Francisco Giants this year. Hasn't really turned out so well. We're doing pretty poorly right now. <laughs> Um, but, so, that, but that's all to say the natural meaning is often best captured in causal relationships. Okay. That's not completely an account of, of natural meaning because natural meaning often means uh, definitional relationships. Um, that uh, a bachelor means an unmarried male. Mm. There's no causal relationship between a bachelor and an unmarried male. There's just a definitional relationship. Mm. A triangle means there are three interior angles. That mm-hmm. add up to 180 degrees, right? So there's there's something a priori or definitional about means in that sense. So that definitional relationship would also fall under the category of natural meaning, natural along meaning. with the causal relationships. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, we can think of other forms of natural relationship of natural meaning, like uh, how tree rings mean that a tree was a certain age when it died. People always point to that example when they're trying to naturalize intentionality. <laughs> Right, and I don't really understand that move because I don't there doesn't seem to be anything intentional about a tree. That's <laughs> a whole other rabbit hole, though. <laughs> okay. Um, so then speaker meaning so then, right. has to do with intentions. More. Grace sets this up as a way of saying, well, sometimes there's a way in which we use the word meaning or means uh, in a very different sense. And what Grace is trying to capture is, is the way in which meaning often reflects the psychological state of the speaker. That is, that meaning often captures how the, the speaker is relying on the, the hearer or the audience to mm. you know, get, in some sense, what the speaker is intending, even if that's distinct from the semantic content of what the speaker says. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes this comes out uh, in an example... 
if um, I'm looking at the clock repeatedly and I say, I'm hungry, you might understand me to mean that uh, this seminar is running long and I, and I really want it to be over because I need to go, mm. even though I didn't say any of that, right? All I said was, I'm hungry or gosh, look what time it is. So we have lots of ways of, of saying something right. that is not necessarily in a coded language, but where what we're trying to do through the saying is convey our intentional states uh, so that others can understand them. So and, some, and we depend on others' understanding. Sometimes what we mean is distinct from what we actually say. Yes. And sometimes we can... I mean, and with, with the example that you just gave, sometimes you can speak or mean something even if you don't actually vocalize any words. Absolutely, yeah. Or like except if someone's standing on my foot and I just look down and stare at my foot, I'm speaker meaning for them to get off my foot and they can recognize that intention Good. just by my behavioral response even though I don't actually vocalize, hey, get off my foot. Good example, yeah, good example. And so... I want to argue that it's not just yeah. You know, speaker meaning is a, a, a strange, strange thing to call it because it seems to imply that there's something spoken that has right. to take place. But that's not always the case in the example that you just gave. But I'll, I also want to argue that uh, any form of written communication can also contain speaker meaning, mm-hmm. and often does, um, especially the, when it comes to reading between the lines about what someone is saying or reading. Um, knowing that you're speaking uh, the sort of private language that will develop between friends where they don't have to say everything that they, in, in full detail, everything that they mean in order for the, the friend to pick up on exactly what they mean. So when you're talking about poetic speaker meaning, that's just the intention that the poet had in writing the poem? Whatever so, the poet intended the meaning to be, that's poetic speaker meaning? So the idea would be, if speaker meaning is a more complete way of thinking about how to communicate intentional states or how to communicate ideas, mm-hmm. then one possibility would be, can we look at, can we think of poems as acts of speech? And if we can think of them as acts of speech, then can we use the rubric of speaker meaning to see whether that helps us figure out what's going on with meaning in a poem? Mm-hmm. And... So I run through a variety of examples about how that might work and eventually conclude, as, as you pointed out, that speaker meaning in the production of artwork gets complicated because, or as a means of interpreting meaning in artwork, gets complicated because of what Monroe Beardsley and William Wimsatt call the intentional fallacy. And the intentional fallacy is, is a version of the genetic fallacy. It's just where you confuse a product with its origins. In the case of artwork, it's where you confuse the meaning of a work of art with the artist's intentions. Mm-hmm. An artist can have intentions to produce some work of art and fail to produce, fail to fulfill those intentions. Mm-hmm. It might be one way in which the meaning of a work of art doesn't match the artist's intentions. Another way in which they, there might be a mismatch is that the... <clears throat> an artist produces a work of art unaware of how it's going to be received by an audience and the audience is bringing a different set of cultural assumptions, a different set of um, circumstances, a different set of whatever was in the news that day to their experience of the work of art and find meaning in that work of art, meaning that was never put there deliberately by the artist. 
Right. Okay. So, so that's a reason to think that speaker meaning isn't going to help us figure out the meaning of a poem because speaker meaning is going to rely on knowing what the artist's intentions are, what the poet's intentions are, and just using the poem as a means to communicate those intentions. Right. Sometimes, sometimes the artist will fail to communicate their attention, intentions in the poem. So, but there's still meaning in the poem. So it can't be that the poem's meaning is synonymous with their intentions because you can't discern their intentions, but there's clearly still a meaning. Good. But couldn't they, couldn't the poet... How do you know whether the poet has actually failed to communicate their intentions? What if from the poet's perspective, they have effectively communicated their intentions into the poem, but you just can't discern that those intentions because you're reading the poem through, you're bringing your personal significance to the poem and that personal significance is blinding to you, blinding you to what their intentions are. Yeah, great point. Um, does that make sense? Like sometimes like you see the meaning first and you see the meaning as whatever way that you're interpreting it and right. that might blind you to the intentions even if the intentions are there. Right. Um, I guess I would reframe the problem and say, if the poet wants to maintain control over what a poem means, then it shouldn't be produced as a cultural object worthy of study by others. It should just be something kept in a journal or something kept private, uh, maybe even kept inside one's head. Because it, the reason is that as soon as you produce something and call it a cultural object like a poem, what you're doing is you're offering it up to the interpretation of others or for the interpretation of others. Um, you're offering it to them so that they might find the meaning that's in it. Um, Could you say more about this notion of producing cultural objects? Because if I'm not, if I'm remembering correctly, you say that poetry as a genre of art only has meaning in virtue of producing cultural objects. Yeah, I do say that in this paper and I want to walk back okay. um, you know, that claim. I'm not, I'm not real happy about figuring out what I've done so far to figure out how it is that poems have meaning. That was my first stab at, at making the case that, that I don't take it for granted that poems do have meaning. And I think that I need to argue that they do. I think it's the case that words have meanings. You know, they have the meanings that they're due through conventional use, through dictionary definitions, through you know, experts imbuing them with meanings or just settling on what their meanings are uh, through naming, things like that. I think it's the case that sentences and propositions have meanings that we can figure out in virtue of the, the rules of syntax and semantics and even pragmatics. Um, but then when you get to the level of the poem, mm -hmm. I think of poems as being like plays or novels where sometimes it sounds weird to say that a novel has a meaning or a play has a meaning. I mean, if somebody asked you, what is the meaning of Hamlet? I don't know. I can, I can think of lots of meaningful things to say about Hamlet, but right. I'm not sure I could tell you what the meaning of Hamlet is. Right. Not just because of the definitive the in that sentence or the question, um, because I certainly don't think that Hamlet is going to have any one fixed, unique meaning. But it sounds like an odd question to ask. Does Hamlet have a meaning? On the other hand, we do still use this term as we, as we talk about poetry. What, what does this poem mean is a very common question yeah. that readers 
especially students of poetry, will ask. And I don't think that they're speaking gibberish. I think that they're saying, they're asking a, an authentic question. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I, I need to give an account of how poems can have meanings. So yeah. calling them cultural objects was the first stab at that. But of course that doesn't really help because Hamlet is a cultural object as well. And I'm just, just use that as an example to show that not all cultural objects have fixed and unique meanings. Right. Okay. I don't want to run too many of these issues together, so let's yeah, keep yeah. clarifying things. I also don't want to argue that poems have fixed and unique meanings. In fact, right. that's precisely what I'm arguing against, is that if for a poem to have a fixed and unique meaning, perhaps would tie back to what, what we were just talking about, would, that meaning might have to be linked to the artist's intentions, probably would be have, have to be linked to the artist's intentions. Uh, but very often, we don't know the artist's intentions. We don't even know the author. We don't even know who wrote something, but we can, we can still find it meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, an anonymously written poem or a poem that's where the authorship has been lost. Um, we can also have a poem, know who the author is, but not know enough about the author, the political state at the time, their, the author's mental state, Mm-hmm. To, to know any of the things that we think we ought to know, to, to decipher what the, um, the meaning that the author or poet was trying to imbue in the poem. Contextual factors that might be relevant to discerning what the artist's intention was. They, they often are, yeah. especially when we know who the author of, of a poem is. But in the case of someone like Sappho, where uh, we have very few complete poems, we have lots of poem fragments, and we know very little about Sappho's life, then it's going to be very difficult to say what the meaning of any given poem is if we need all of those contextual details to say what her poems mean. Right. Um, but in, I, th- I don't think that that precludes us from saying that Sappho's poems have meaning. Mm-hmm. So this is something I wanted to ask you. So you say, as you say, you don't want to, your claim isn't that poetic meaning is fixed. You say that it's relational and it's indeterminate because it's partially based on what you read into the poem what the person brings to the poem, right? Mm-hmm. But you also say that the poetic meaning isn't ineffable, ineffable. I think that's the right word, right? It's not like there's nothing to be said about it or it's so transcendent that it can't be put into words or it doesn't right. exist. So I guess my question would be, are there a finite number of acceptable interpretations yeah. when you're arriving at whatever at the poetic meaning, or are there literally an infinite number of acceptable interpretations? Because in your paper, you give an analysis of this poem by Ezra Pound. What's it called again? It's, um, oh, In a Station of the Metro. Right. And in your analysis, you seem to assume that there's a finite number of different acceptable interpretations. And which interpretation you arrive at might be dependent upon what personal significance you're bringing to it. But... Are you conceptualizing things in that manner? Or, like I said, is there potentially an infinite number of different acceptable ways? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sense? I think once again, I'm trying to have it both ways. Uh, I'm trying to, to both claim that um, personal significance, prior experience, one's personal identity, all of the yeah. things that they bring to a reading of a poem are going to inform what that poem means. Right. On the other hand, I don't want to say that the meaning of a poem is just so wide open that it can mean anything at all. Right, it's not radically subjective. 
even though I did use that term early on, <laughs> um, to say that, it, that I do want to say there's some sort of rad, radical subjectivity to it. Um, but not radically subjective in the sense that there's an infinite number of acceptable interpretations. Right, right. You want to impose some constraints there, even though it is largely subjective, the meaning. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm not exactly sure how to, how to put this quite yet. Yeah. But I'm following a very strong intuition that there's a limited number of interpretations that are possible. On the other hand, that limited number is going to be much wider than anything having to do with the author's intentions, mm -hmm. much wider than anything that one reader can comprehend. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that that puts me in the camp of saying something close to the the meaning of a poem is, is fairly wide open or so wide open that it can mean almost anything. And right now I'm okay with that. Uh, but there does... I, I'm not mm -hmm. motivated by the sorts of concerns that say we have to narrow it down as much as I'm trying to give an account of everything that it can mean. I'm definitely against the idea that there should be a fixed poetic meaning, so I'm with you that with respect to the idea that it is subjective, but the idea that there's an infinite number of acceptable interpretations does seem to open the door for a kind of reductio ad absurdum, because then you can give me a poem, I don't know an example, or you can give me Hamlet or something like that, and I could just say, oh, that's like about, that's a utopian sci-fi play. Right. And that would be a legitimate meaning because there are an infinite number of acceptable interpretations. So at that point, you're in the realm of reductio ad absurdum. Right. It seems like you have to impose some constraints, right? Sure. And I, I want to say that those constraints are just imposed by the, the possible meanings of the words mm -hmm. uh, within the poem that make up the poem. Um, not necessarily the author's intentions because I think that the, the poem can mean something beyond what the author intended beyond what the author could have predicted, especially as we read poems from our present state and look very far back in the future and read poems about things, um, you know, from, from a, a place in the present where we have all kinds of um, cultural phenomena and technological phenomena that those past writers could never have predicted or had in mind. Uh, but the Ezra Pound poem shows up, or I use it because it's, it's an example of a very very brief poem uh, that is very brief that is <laughs> yet very, that is yet very complicated I mean it's two lines long I'll read it for the sake of the listeners yeah um, so in a station of the metro is the title of the poem the apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bow mm -hmm. that's the poem in its entirety <laughs> and we could say all kinds of meaningful things about it. Yeah. Ezra Pound was being exposed to um, a lot of Chinese and Japanese poetry at the time. He was being exposed to the strategy of parataxis, where you place two objects side by side, don't um, make any sort of metaphor or simile about them, just let the fact that you've chosen to place two objects side by side be the invitation to consider what these two objects might mean to one another or mean in relationship to one another. Uh, he was being exposed to um, some of this through um, 
Erna Spinoza's uh, look into um, the Chinese character and the structure of the Chinese character and the, the way in which the Chinese characters, some of them anyway, often resemble the actions that are being represented by the characters. Uh, and so there seems to be this sort of naturalistic naming argument or naturalistic meaning argument that, that Fenoyosa was trying to make. Um, and we can know all of those things and say, well, then this is an, an English language version of uh, the kind of paratactical strategy that you might see in a Japanese haiku, mm. for example. This is not a haiku. It doesn't have three lines. It doesn't have the right sort of syllable count. Uh, but it's using the same sort of conceptual strategy that a, that a haiku might use. Yeah. But I think that... That's a really in-depth analysis. <laughs> but I think that you can, you can get a lot out of this poem without knowing any of that either. Right? Yeah. That there's just a, there seems to be a comparison here. Even though there are no comparison-like words, there's no like or as, there's, no, there's nothing structuring this as a metaphor. But there seems to be some sort of comparison here between faces in a crowded train station and the way that, say, Bradford Pear's petals might stick to a, mm. uh, a rain-slicked you know, branch of, of that tree. And it does speak in favor of your subjectivity thesis because the poem is so colloquial and so short. If any poem is going to have some fixed meaning, this is going to be the poem. <laughs> right. And as you say, it totally doesn't. There's so many different ways to make sense of it and so many potential meanings that are open. Right. Yeah. And I agree. That's why I chose to use this one as one of my first examples, um, just because it's such a brief poem that, like you said, if any poem is going to have a unique and fixed meaning, then possibly this one would be the one. So just to keep the listeners up to speed as to where we are. I just don't want the listeners to get lost. So we're talking about your paper, Poetic Meaning. This might be redundant, but... And you're giving a conceptual analysis of poetic meaning. And poetic meaning has this open-endedness aspect to it where we cherish the ambiguity, and that's different from other linguistic devices. So that suggests that poetic meaning demands a unique conceptual analysis or semantic analysis. And you consider the hypothesis that poetic meaning is just synonymous with the artist's intention, but as we just talked about and distinguishing between natural meaning and speaker meaning, but then you do away with that thesis by discussing the intentional fallacy, and then you consider the idea that, okay, well maybe the further meaning is filled in by contextual factors, and then you argue that that's not enough either. So we're gonna have to bring something personally to the poem in order to completely fill in the meaning, in, or, in order to account for the open-endedness aspect of poetry, right? Artist right. intention and contextual pragmatic factors aren't enough. There right. needs to be that personal significance to do justice to the open-endedness. I'm just going to read a quick quote sure. of, that you give about... That's a great summary. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, again, sometimes I'm redundant here, but just for the listeners, they're like, all right, where are we? This is where we are. That's helpful for me too. And so this is the, this is coming right from your paper. This is kind of a formal definition of poetic meaning that you give at the end of the paper for the listeners. So you say, poetic meaning is just this. There is what we read from the poem or the literal standard meanings of the words that compose the poem. And then there is what we read into the poem, which captures the personal significance we bring to it figurative meanings, and the illusions we read the poem making. Poetic meaning lies in the open-endedness that results from the overlap of the previous two, 
when we read a text as a poem. So, while there is potential ambiguity in the overlap of any text's literal meaning and its figurative meaning, the resulting ambiguity is a productive feature of the text only when the text is of a kind with the convention of accepting the ambiguity." End quote. So, there's what we read into the poem. So poems, unlike other things like TV shows, for example, they, they demand something from the viewer or from the reader in a way that TV shows don't. And I want to hone in on this aspect of the paper now for a second, this relationship between the demandingness of art and personal significance. So mm -hmm. you put forth this thesis and the thesis goes something like this. You say, the more the work of art requires of the reader, the more the work of art's meaning is a matter of personal significance. And you talk about this argument that comes from a scholar named Franzen. Oh, Jonathan Franzen? Jonathan Franzen. He's a novelist, yeah. Yeah, so he says, he makes the point that TV and film are more popular than the novel because they are better at producing easily consumed stories. Mm. The loss here is that TV and film make their stories more easily consumable by asking the audience to do less work. And you can see this in watching a television. Like sure. It just requires less cognitive effort on your part, obviously. Absolutely, right. A novelist implicitly asks the reader to learn more about herself while reading by requiring the reader to bring her own experiences to the text. Put more simply, when reading a novel, we imagine ourselves and what we know into the story. When watching a movie or TV show, we are watching an actor do that for us. So poetry and novels require this imaginative construction. Yes. That you have to construct it in your imagination and then you're almost, I've never really thought about it in this way, but if you're doing, you're multitasking when you're reading a poem. <laughs> right, sure. You're, you're, you're simultaneously constructing yep. the events in your imagination and viewing the events yes. as you're constructing them. Yeah, good. <laughs> when, you're, when you're watching a TV show or something like that, you're just viewing it. Yeah. So it's definitely more cognitively demanding. And you think that that makes it more beautiful. So this is another thing you talk about. You talk about one of the aesthetic aims of modern, 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 modernity? God. Modernity? Modernity. I always butcher that word. Yeah. Modernity. Ambiguity I usually butcher too. Yeah. Modernity. One of the aesthetic aims of modernity is the separation of beauty from attractiveness, where attractiveness is understood as a power to please quickly and without much thought or effort. So according to this thesis, the more an art demands of you, the more beautiful it is, or the better art it is. I feel like that might be controversial. Sure. I, and Sorry, I know I just brought a lot to the table. This is very helpful. Um, part of the... Mardinity. The, the conversation I was having with Lewis earlier uh, revolved around how we often learn from readers about our own work. Right. And, and I think that that just adds to the argument for thinking that the intentional fallacy is right or that, that a work of uh, production can't just mean only what the author intended it to mean. Um, I'm going to eventually expand that and say it's not just poems or, or novels that... that for which this work, but you know, any text really, and this is why we argue over the meaning of the Constitution, or this is why we argue over the meaning of, of laws, how to interpret them, right? Because we don't, the meanings are not identical with the author's intentions. However, um, that's all to say that I appreciate you, um, you know, summarizing the issues that show up here because you're showing me uh, things that I'm not sure that I'm even aware of that I'm making. So I'm not sure that I want to make the claim that the more difficult. Uh, a text is the more beautiful it is because you can imagine just uh, a cheap strategy to making something and calling it beautiful would just be to make it very dense and difficult. 
Yeah. And to, to be clear, I don't think that you explicitly endorse that thesis in okay. the paper, but you, you, you do mention it, and I thought it, it aligned with this thesis that you're putting forth, according to which. But I don't think... I, I do think, though, that, um, that it is the case that, that poetry, because it demands uh, a kind of slow, focused attention, yeah. that... Not very much in our contemporary lives require of us. Television certainly doesn't require driving. You know, requires everything to go much faster. Driving a car, yeah. Um, consuming any sort of uh, film or television media is something that we're we're not asked to do a whole lot cognitively, like you said. Um, but poetry asks us to typically um, engage with text where we're not exactly sure where it's going to go. We don't know already what kind of experience we're going to have. Yeah. Um, it asks us to do it in a, in a slow way that um, is, can be anyway in, in this day and age fairly boring because it's, it's not very flashy or exciting. There's, there's not much chance of anything animating, uh, animated happening on, on the screen or page if that's what you're reading mm. from. Or especially if we go to a poetry reading and we listen to it, um, then we're yeah. engaging it in a different way where we can't even see the text, we're hearing it only, and then having to construct the format of the text in our heads. But poetry's reliance on, uh, on the image, especially in the late 20th and, and 21st century, the, the, prim the primacy of the image in, in poetry means that we have to bring a lot of that cognitive power to constructing the image that the poet is asking us to construct. Yeah. Never knowing if we're achieving it, never knowing if we're, you know, constructing the same image that the poet had in mind. Right. Um, but doing the best that we can to do it. If we're reading a poem rather quickly and we're doing it because it's homework and we're just trying to complete an assignment, then we're not bringing a whole lot to it. But if we're doing it because... Uh, it's fun because it's what we want to do. It's how we want to spend our time. It's it's we're trying to really understand another author's work. Then we might give it more time and attention and, and bring more of our cognitive cognitive resources mm. to unpacking it. So, I, but my argument is just you can't read a poem and just assume that you understand all of its possible meanings on its first reading or, or even just um, yeah. by listening to it or you know, maybe even doing a little reading about what the poet intended at the time. Instead, it seems like we have to do a lot of the work to understand what might be going on in a poem. Yeah. And the more that we're of that work that we're doing, then it seems like along the way we're learning something about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that might be, just be interesting. Um, but as, as we're learning something about ourselves, we're also learning how to put that into some sort of narrative form, whether that narrative form is in the poem or not. I mean, a lot of the poems that I enjoy reading the most are not narrative poems. I mean, mm -hmm. Ezra Pound, one that we just talked about, has no narrative structure to it. A lot of William Carlos Williams' poems have very little, if any, narrative structure to them. So yeah. there doesn't seem to be an arc or a story that we're following like we would in a novel or like we would on a television show. But there's an image that we're, that we're supposed to construct somehow. But the fact that it requires more cognitive energy on your part, as you say, doesn't it necessarily entail that it's 
a higher art form than other art forms because like yeah like you said you don't endorse that and I don't wouldn't endorse that either because even if you're just talking about poetry sometimes if you endorse that thesis then you would be committed to the claim that impenetrable poetry or non-colloquial yeah. poetry right. is higher art than colloquial poetry and I would right. want to reject that claim no absolutely not like Billy Collins is one of my favorite uh, right. poets yeah. and he writes colloquially exactly yeah and um, I'm not trying to claim that that there are I don't, I don't even I'm not invested in the game of making these sort of gradations of art right you're not making that claim no absolutely not um the only claim that I am making here that I want to make is that... It's a fun it, claim to think about, though. It is that work that we have to do in order to understand what might be going on in a poem that yeah. opens the door for this subjective meaning. Right. Would you say that... So, yeah, you don't want to endorse that claim, but would you? do you think that TV and film are less of an art than poetry? Uh, I don't want to say that either. I love spending my evenings unwinding by uh, watching something. And, Me too. Uh, and I, I mean, I can think of examples of, you know, very easily digestible, very easily consumable television shows where the characters, the plots, the behaviors, the things that they say are utterly predictable, and yet they're still enjoyable. Uh, on the other hand, I can think of examples of, uh, well, to finish that example, Big Bang Theory. Uh, the characters are fairly predictable. The the plots are fairly predictable. The things that that you know the the conflicts that they have to resolve are fairly predictable. Mm-hmm. And yet it is completely entertaining to watch. I've seen a few episodes, but I haven't gotten hooked yet. Yeah, I found them entertaining. Uh, on the other hand, um, there's film and television that um, is certainly filled with ambiguity, filled with difficult-to-follow plots. Um, and I enjoy watching those as well. I mean, the, the Twin Peaks third season that David Lynch put out last year is filled with all kinds of odd symbolism that it would take scholars years to unpack what all that symbolism means, if anything in particular. Um, and yeah. I'm not... You can still have uh, an enjoyable experience you know consuming it without understanding fully what it means and again this is orthogonal to what you're up to in your paper but it's just a fact it's an interesting philosophical question to ask about art you might even say that it doesn't even make sense to rank different art forms according to this hierarchy right right some art forms represent a higher art form than other art forms maybe that question itself going back to the beginning of the podcast is incoherent and we need to be asking different questions when comparing and contrasting art forms. Or maybe we shouldn't even be comparing and contrasting art forms. So. I think that's a question that um, a lot of people are interested in, have been interested throughout history in, yeah. in asking and, and get very invested in defending the superiority of some art form over others or superiority of some artists over others within an art form. And I don't know, I'm more of a, a pluralist and take more of an inclusive attitude. I'm not really interested in defining what counts as art and what doesn't count as art. I'm not really interested in defining uh, what counts as a poem, what doesn't count as a poem, who gets to write poems. Uh, I take a much more inclusive attitude and say, you know, come one, come all. Uh, there are all different kinds of ways of enjoying poetry. And I'd rather not 
I'd, I'd rather spend time figuring out how to get more people interested in poetry and finding poetry that, that fits with their aesthetic sensibilities than spend time saying, you should be reading poetry instead of doing X, Y, Z, watching television or, or anything else. Right. <laughs> you want art? Come over to the bookstore. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I thought maybe we could now shift to the poetry reading sure. component. Yeah. Unless there's something else. No. This is, departing this is, thoughts about your paper. Um, I think the only thing that I would say is that I know that the paper's got um, holes, and I think that those holes. What's are, the biggest hole? Do you think in the paper? What's the one thing that you really need to patch up in order to make the argument stronger than it is now? I think I need to give, stuff. like as you pointed out, I think I need to give a better, stronger account of why poems have meaning at all. It can't just be that they're cultural objects. I need to figure out another way of expressing why it is that I believe that, that poems have meanings at all that are worthy of study. Is and that's, first... be that's because, you're going back to your Hamlet example, there are right. examples of cultural objects that don't necessarily have meaning or don't seem to have meaning. Right, for, for which it would be strange to ask that question at all. Right. And then I think that that, that leads to the second major move that I need to, to build on. Uh, and, and I don't think this is a hole in the paper as much as it's just the paper itself points out that uh, when we talk about meaning in poetry, we're talking about only one thing that's interesting about poetry. In fact, um, mm -hmm. I, th I think that that's sort of a often, if we just yeah. ask ourselves what a poem means, then we're missing a lot else about what is interesting to talk about about poetry so it might be better to ask just what does this poem do rather than what does it mean mm -hmm. uh, because i can have a, a, an interesting aesthetic experience listening to somebody read a poem that's in a language that i don't understand right. and i can still have a pleasurable experience with that form of poetry and i don't understand a word of it in other words i can't get at its meaning right right but i can still enjoy it so um, semantic meaning is divorced from aesthetics can be. It can be. Yeah. They could be intertwined in some cases too. Absolutely. But yeah, you can read a poem in a foreign language and have no idea about what it means, but still have a very profound experience. And asking what the poem does can include that profound experience within the scope Absolutely. of the question in a way that asking what it means doesn't. Yeah, and I think that this uh, was got at by a lot of the sound poets of the mid-20th century. The sound poets who, when you listen to their recordings or you attend their performances, you can tell that what they're doing is they're constructing a, a performance of poetry yeah. without using words. They're just making sounds. Or they're using words without following the normal rules of syntax and grammar that would make uh, propositions and sentences lines of poetry that we could understand the semantic content of. Hmm. Uh, instead, they're just making noises, making sounds. Mm -hmm. And because of that more inclusive stance that I take on what counts as poetry, I want to say, yeah, sure, that's poetry. But asking what it means is kind of the wrong question. <laughs> right. Uh, you're not going to get at what sound poetry means. Right. Okay, well, let's move on to your book, so I've done this before on the podcast. Had a, I had an earlier podcast with my friend Sarah, and we did a live poetry reading. Cool, but All right. I thought I could. I so I've just as I've told you, I've picked out some of my favorite poems from your book. What comes from a thing? Okay. And by the way, when I put out this podcast, could you send me like a link as to where people can get sure. the book? Yeah. So I'll have that link attached, and 
yeah, anyone listening should go out and buy Philip's book because I'm no not just to plug it, but like I really enjoyed the book, Philip. Great, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, I thought I could re- go through the poems and read the ones that I connected with the most, and you could say something about the process of writing it, uh, what your poetic speaker meaning was behind it. It can be as long or brief as you want for each poem. Sounds good. Is that cool? Okay. The first one, and again, the title of the book is What Comes From a Thing. The first one is called The Scarecrow. It's, I think, maybe the first poem in the book. Yeah, I think so. All right, so I'm going to read it. It's on page 11. The Scarecrow. I'll try to <laughs> do, as, do justice to the poems by reading them in a rhythmic enticing way okay i might fail i look forward to this (laughs) the scarecrow sunlight scatters in place of what was a road which like the rose beside it harrowed from the dirt held tight the shape of desire to make the land a means each row less formed until the last dark shape lessens into light cast wide by fog in one of the rows stands a man stuffed and still one must be still to see the scarecrow to wait for heat and wind to part water suspended in cumulus. Though fog breaks morning's promise of field mice and hare, to the northern harrier discloses winter's debt, in green shoots brighter than the sun itself, and holds itself to the thought, there is no consequence, there is only permission. The fog is not a reason to think the scarecrow minds the fog. It is only a straw man. Yeah, thanks for the reading. Snap <laughs> Okay, so yeah, again, we, uh, you don't even necessarily have to say anything if you don't want, if you don't remember. Whatever. Sure. Um, I'm just, I'm curious as to what produced these. So this one I wrote when I was living in Davis, California. I was teaching philosophy classes in Woodland, California, which is about 10 miles north of Davis. And to get from Davis to Woodland, you drive through farm fields. This is in California's Central Valley where they grow all of the great agricultural produce that we eat all around the country. Mm-hmm and driving past a lot of spinach fields and tomato fields um, on a daily basis meant that when it came wintertime, the only rainy season in that part of California, in the deep winter, instead of anything that resembles uh, winter weather out here in Connecticut, what they have is the fog season. Yeah. And they would just have this intense tule fog. It's named after a, a tule grass. Uh, in the in the river delta, which is where most of the fog originates, and then sort of blows around, um, follow the wind patterns, and blows around this part of Central Valley, California. And the fog was so intense that sometimes you couldn't see more than a block in front of you. Mm-hmm. And teaching a morning class would mean that I would get up, there'd be this wall of fog, I couldn't see the house across the street, and I would have to drive very slowly to get to. <laughs> Woodland 10 miles away, driving through farm fields right. um, to get to where I was going. And um, sometimes I would just, you know, pull over and just observe. Because I'd never lived in a place that had fog that thick before. Yeah. And I would just pull over on the side of the road and just spend a few minutes, you know, get out, walk around some of the orchards or, or fields of, of crops, whatever they were, and just take in, like, what in the world is is all this fog about? Like, how I feel like you're in heaven. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was it was strange. Um, in the same way that living in a place where it snows heavily, like Connecticut, 
makes it feel like you live in two different places because one morning you can wake up and it looks like you moved because the land, landscape changed. Yeah. Um, there, the, the way in which the landscape changed was just, it was obscured. It was, mm. it was filled in, in 360 degrees, you know. You couldn't see uh, any way, any which direction that you looked, and that was just fascinating to me. When you're writing, do you usually, do you have a vision for the poem? Like some general theme, and then the th- and I've talked about this before, but that then the theme drives into existence the particular lines, or do you often just have cool poetic lines that come to your head that might not be connected with one another per se, and then the general unified theme emerges out of those lines, or does it completely depend on the poem, and there is no established way you go yeah. about writing? I, w- I wish I could reduce it to something that was more predictable. Mm-hmm just for my own sake. <laughs> uh, but then especially being able to share that with others uh, would be great. But uh, no, I, I, the only method that I have is, is uh, keeping a notebook with me and taking notes whenever uh, yeah. I feel like I've you know, observed something that's worthy of, of jotting down in my notes uh, whenever I see something that looks new or novel or that I want to figure out, um, especially when I see or hear or encounter something I don't understand um, right write down as much as I can, you know, capture about what it is that I don't understand about where I am or what I've just experienced or the conversation I've just had with somebody. And keeping that notebook uh, handy means that over time I've just developed the habit of writing, you know, Mm -hmm. snippets here and there. uh, And then... The poems slowly emerge. Yeah, it's part of... the, The poem really emerges only when I'm able to make time to you know, block out uh, a half day or something and look back at all those notes and say, Try to put do any of these hold together? Do any of these notes hold together in this way? Can I write something about this experience at that time? It's kind of like a puzzle at that point. Like you have all these different lines that you've been writing and you're like, does this go with that one? Does that yeah, go with that one? You're seeing if they're connected. Absolutely. I love jigsaw puzzles too. So yeah. Maybe that's why I have <laughs> simple poems in this way. Do you ever feel like... And we're going to get to the rest of the poems, but I have questions bubbling into consciousness. Do you ever feel like that you... Have you ever had the feeling that this poem is done? There's a quote, I forget where it comes from. Art is never finished, is always abandoned. And I definitely feel like that's true with respect to poetry. You can always make it better. And sometimes it's just a matter of stepping away from it for however many weeks and then returning. And you're like, oh, I can... You just instantly see a way to make it better. Has there, is, has there ever been a poem that you've wrote that you really think is perfect and that you feel like no. is just done? No, I think they've all been abandoned. <laughs> they're all, they've all been abandoned. <laughs> they're all orphans. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I feel the uh, same way. No, and that's part of... Uh, we were talking earlier about you know revisiting things that you've done, either recordings you've made or things that you've written before and always wanting to go back and edit. Uh, you can drive yourself insane. You can. <laughs> I've done it with this podcast. Yeah. Like I literally feel like <laughs> this podcast is just a self-torture device. In some, right. in some, that's what it's turned into. Yeah? Right. Just going back and being overly self-critical and all that. Well, and, and that's why it's important to hear from listeners about how much we appreciate your podcasts and, and don't see all of the, the flaws in it that you see in the same way that a poet has to re- hear from their critics or readers that they see something that... But, you know, because when I look back at these poems, of course, I see the, the mistakes 
Um, Other people certainly see the flaws, though. Like, I'm brothers. <laughs> I've like, gotten criticism from my brother. Right. Lots I mean, brothers. good criticism. I want it. Yeah, it's just like, you know, uh, listen more. Stop interrupting. Stuff like that. That's yeah. the criticism I want. Yeah. You know, makes me better. Conversationalist, which is what I'm going for. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, yeah, let's move on to the next poem. Also, I just really like the end of that poem a lot. There's no consequence. There's only permission. The fog is not a reason to think the scarecrow minds the fog. It is only a straw man. The next one is The Problem of History, which is on page 15 of the book. So I'll read it. The Problem of History. Under sky's gray lid, blackbirds spot the yellow safety rails, framing the site of creation. Sunday morning at the quarry, calls weigh heavily in humid air. Thread the silence, gantries, conveyance belts poised to tumble granite upward, deliver the foundations of kingdom from layered contingency to the steepest angles of solidity. Time was digging a pit. The gate, which may never open, may never have been open. In the silence of machine boundaries, in the absence of a mechanism, we trespass in a place that asks not to be kept. For the reading. Um, yeah. I like that one a lot. I feel like it ties into the title of the book, What Comes From a Thing. We trespass in a place that asks not to be kept. So, yeah, what was the, what's the story behind this, if you remember? So, while I was in, um, working on this book, I was also learning a lot about the Black Mountain poets. Um, Charles Olson, Robert Creeley, Denise Levertov, uh, and learning mainly about the Black Mountain College, which was an experimental arts college that developed in um, the mountains of North Carolina in the middle of the 20th century. It was led by people like Charles Olson, and it was designed to be <clears throat> sort of a school for experimentation for people who didn't feel like they fit in with any other uh, discipline. Mm. Uh, it was about painting and sculpture and engineering. Uh, Buckminster Fuller taught there at some point with his you know, uh, preaching the gospel of geodesic domes. Mm. Um, Robert Creeley was Charles Olson's student while he was there. Uh, John Cage taught there for a while. So a lot of what we now know of is you know some of the the great avant-garde artists of, of the United States in the mid 20th century were at some point linked to um, Black Mountain College. And yeah. I was learning a lot about it and went to a conference that they have in Asheville, North Carolina to kind of celebrate the history of, and, and legacy of Black Mountain College. And I gave a paper there on, on Charles Olson, on projective verse, the, his famous essay. And um, while I was there, part of the end of the conference was that everybody would take a sort of a collective trip over to what's now a campground that, that used to be the, the campus of Black Mountain College. Mm -hmm. The college closed, in, I think, in the 1950s when it basically ran out of funding and couldn't secure any new funding model. Um, but the buildings are still there, and they're being used by uh, a camp now, uh, kind of a summer camp. And visiting, <clears throat> attending the conference introduced for me a lot of complicated feelings, mostly having to do with dwelling in the past, dwelling on history, walking through my own um, 
experience with producing art with this feeling like there's a generation before me that produced all of the great art and I wasn't mm. around to be a part of it or not just a generation or two but you know there was a time before I was even alive yeah. that would have been better suited to my aesthetic or that um, that would have been better for me to have been around then and I know that that's obviously false and yet at the same time I had this sort of visceral reaction to the fact that we were walking around this campus mm-hmm. as if the walls were going to tell us some secret about Black Mountain College, <laughs> as if just looking at the building was going to give us the insights that John Cage had. Some residual um, poetic magic. Something was might have been there, right? right. Um, and There is I, something to that. Sometimes when you're walking around old buildings, you can kind of feel... The history. Sure, the ghosts of the Seeped into the building. Right, yeah. Telling you something. Um, so on the one hand, and, and, and I think this, I don't know, this is my own back and forth, um, yeah. where I'm somebody who's, I think, you know, fairly rational, uh, or at least rationalistic most of the time, and yet I still want to remain open to new experiences. And so... Um, this poem came out of that visit, but then also leaving there and uh, literally at the end of the driveway where <coughs> for the, for the um, summer camp, formerly the campus of Black Mountain College, there's now a quarry. And there's a, there's a quarry where they're, they're literally you know, digging up granite and um, making all those nice granite countertops out of the granite that they can pull out of the ground there. And so... That felt to me like the, the obvious metaphor to use to think about history in this context and, and the way in which we invest ourselves in, in studying history and thinking that, that the generations that came before us were able, they had some sort of clarity about their experience in the world that we just don't have. Yeah. Or that they were able to, to do things that we're not able to do and just the, the, the falsity of of those sorts of claims um, so I don't know that's a little bit about about that particular poem and what motivated writing it but, but also my, my partner is an historian and uh, and also so I guess in the back of my mind are the, the thoughts that, that I have generated by conversations with her about the difficulty of studying the past the difficulty of, of trying to reconstruct what the past was like, um, the difficulty of trying to reconstruct, especially from the very, especially from the very few documents that remain, what day-to-day experiences of people must have been like. It's interesting to think about because in the far future, studying the past is probably going to be easier, potentially, just because of the fact that there's so much digital information now that Your serves as a more tangible... Uh, Recording of what happened. Right. A literal recording. Right. A literal recording. Yeah. You're assuming the digital apocalypse doesn't come. And yeah, assuming, yeah. <laughs> assuming the apocalypse isn't right around the corner. Um, Sorry. Yeah, and on the other hand, you might say that uh, it will be even more difficult in the future to study history because, primarily because of all of the data that's available uh, and the, the data overload to, that goes along with that, right? The inability to sift through all of the data that might be relevant oh yeah and the need to the 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 feeling of needing to always look through more 
it's kind of happening now in this whole fake news era. There's just so much information. Sometimes I feel like I don't even know where to turn right. in terms of what the legitimate news sources are. I'm just yeah. bombarded from all angles. Yeah. Um, what else was I was going to say? Oh, yeah, just going back to your history point. Yeah. I, well, for, for, and also tying this into the whole 9-11 thing. I, when I talk to some people... And I've felt this myself, but you get the sense that history is something behind us. Mm -hmm. History is something that happened, and now we're living in this post-history era. But I've had some conversations with people where they say that 9-11 really awakened them to the fact that we're living in history right now. And this is a bit of a tangent, but it's easy to think that if history is something behind us, then there are no more worries because so many horrible things happen in history. But we're living in this post-World War II era where things have been getting progressively better, generally speaking, around the world. And sometimes it takes like a major catastrophe to waken you up to the fact that, no, things can go really, really bad. And none of this progress is guaranteed. And there have been civilizations on Earth that have been the dominant civilization and have lasted much longer than the United States of America that have fallen. I feel like people forget that. Sure, sure. <laughs> It's, it's humbling to remember it, too. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, too, yeah. that the, the idea that we're, we're post-history, that we're not living in history anymore, is something that could only be thought by a very privileged, um, very comfortable person. And that Absolutely. When you are not a privileged person, you know, when you're the... When you're subject to police brutality, when you're subject to immigration raids, when you're subject to um, the the pangs of hunger that go along with being homeless, uh, sure, poverty, that um, that the claim that we're living somehow post history just rings hollow. Yeah, and I guess uh, Western civilization in general, like generally speaking, we're in a much more privileged, like as a nation. Of course, there are people who are experiencing daily injustices and all this and are just fighting to survive. Right. But just as a Western civilization, we're so much more privileged in living this comfy life that generations before us didn't live. Yeah. I read this book called and, uh, The Better Angels, Angels of Our Nature by mm -hmm. Steven Pinker that really awoke me to this, this fact that yeah. we have been progressing on all levels as a, a human race since the Enlightenment. Um, okay. I know that was a bit of a tangent. Okay, the next... Also, are you pressed for time here? Nope. Okay. Because I, I have a few more that I wanted to read. <laughs> um, so here's... This isn't really a poem in your book. It's kind of almost the hook of the poetry book. You have these little s snippets between sections. And you say... And I'm not sure if you wrote this. It was in italic italicized and it didn't have a title. But it just, I just really liked it and I wanted to say it in the podcast. It says, When my sight lets go takes in the infinite before me forgets for a moment the infinity that has already passed. Did I say that wrong? So there's an Ecuadorian poet um, who I like, who uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, anyway, he has this idea of, uh, he wrote a whole book of what he called micrograms, microgramas. Um, and the micrograms are just very tiny poems <clears throat> that are meant to just be little you know, objects of study, quick objects of study, or little snippets of life. Mm. And um, I had challenged myself to write a few micrograms to go in 
to go in the book, and so that's that's one of them. That's and that, that is you that wrote that. I didn't know if those were snippets from other authors. It was just it was unclear. Yeah, there there are a few um, epigraphs that I put in here, but they tend to be marked, and I, I, I attribute the authorship. Okay, well, I really like that phrase. The infinite before me forgets for a moment the infinite the infinity that has already passed. I think that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> All right. So then the next actual poem is called heirloom on page 18 mm-hmm. and yeah so there's, there's there's four more that I'd like to read heirloom we never said we would not sleep with guns but brother we both took from granddad there's a bullet on the end of every barrel and we want no truck with bullets yet here is a revolver all carousel of spark and spit its chamber shines under oil slick cloth and self-defense the way a winter jet peels ice from the cracks in a Minnesota runway Polished steel beats back no boats of the rising tides. Love. Fear. They flood the world entire. Where misfired mirror neurons, even mistakes, echo for years. (laughs) Again. I love the ending of this. Love. Fear. They flood the world entire. Where misfired mirror neurons, even mistakes, echo for years. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I can turn this back around on you. What do, What do you like about this poem? Like, or what? Is it, uh, why did you want to read it? Well, it's not like there's a. It was again going back to the meaning versus aesthetic experience thing. Yeah. There wasn't a particular meaning that I discerned from the poem. It was. And this is true with most of the poems here. I didn't, generally speaking, do a in-depth analysis on the poems as I was reading them because I didn't have the time I was just reading them so I was really in terms of which ones I chose to read on the podcast it's just the ones that produced the most profound aesthetic experience in me upon the first reading and this is one of the poems that did that I know that's not a no that's a great answer technical answer but that's the answer it's really just the beauty of poetry you can engage with it at a variety of levels yeah you can look for meaning you can look for aesthetic experience you can look for how it sounds. You can look for how it looks on the page. Mm-hmm. You can look for whether it you know, makes reference to things that you're familiar with. Um, we can engage with poetry in a variety of ways, and there's no right yeah. way to do that. Yeah, so most of these poems, I chose them on the basis of the aesthetic experience. It's not like this poem reminded me of a personal memory that I really connected with or anything like yeah. that. It's really just the, the way it reads I guess in general, I really like, I'm blanking, what's it called? Well, I guess just the rhythmic flow. I really appreciate rhythmic flow. That's why I like people like Allen Ginsberg yeah, a lot and the yeah, B poets. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know if poetry is meant to be read out loud, but there are certain poems that are certainly elevated by reading them out loud. I agree, completely agree. And vice versa, there might be certain poems that are meant to be on the page and meant to be read as opposed to vocalized. Yeah. Probably works both ways. I, I think so. But yeah, I can, this one. I can say just... about about this poem that um, it <laughs> it began after an argument with my brother about why he keeps a gun in the house um, when <clears throat> we grew up in a house without guns and but we had a grandfather who was in the military and was um, severely injured, paralyzed from the waist down uh, after an accident with uh, an ammunition truck. 
So that's the, we want no truck with bullets line. Um, and at the same time that I was having this argument with my brother about why he keeps a gun in the house, we, this, it was over a visit with the third brother um, who lives in Minnesota, which is the reference to the Minnesota runway. Mm-hmm. And I had just read the article or an article that I was pointing out how neuroscientists were thinking that the best way to explain empathy had to do with mirror neurons, these neurons that could mirror the uh, facial expressions or the, you know, whatever the emotional state that we were inferring someone else was experiencing, and that that might be the source of explaining how it is that we empathize with others. I've actually read some of the literature on that. It's a fascinating idea, right? Yeah. That, that these neurons are somehow able to replicate states mm-hmm. um, that we perceive to be in others' minds. And so I think, like a lot of poems, the, what eventually emerges as, as the aesthetic product is just this combination of a lot of things that I was thinking about at the same time that may or may not have had anything to do with one another at the semantic level. But as much as like my mind was the place where all these things were converging. Yeah. And this was me trying to make sense of it. This was me trying to make sense of a fairly negative experience with, you know, an argument with my brother. I get along great with my brother. We, I can count on my hand the number of arguments we've had in our adult lives. Um, Damn. And on the other hand, um, trying to make sense of some neuroscience that I was reading and also trying to make sense of uh, a visit where we were visiting the third brother who had just had his firstborn child and uh, he and his wife had just had uh, Henry and we were meeting Henry for the first time and all of that was sort of coming together in just a, a swirl. So it's sort of a reflection of your mindset at that period of your life. When, you, when you're writing, do you have, an, do you often have a particular poetic speaker meaning in mind when you're writing? Because for me, a lot of times when I'm writing poetry, my primary goal is to achieve the aesthetic effect that we were talking about. You know, I'm like, does this sound good? Do the lines sound good? The semantic meaning is very much a peripheral concern for me in the writing process. Does one of those take priority for you in writing? Um, I I can't say that in general there's a rule that I follow. Um, For this particular poem, right, the, the conclusion having to do with mirror neurons and about how mirror neurons might represent the, the ability to, to duplicate someone else's mental state yeah. uh, is why I chose to make this poem about you know a, a snapshot of a particular mental state. Mm-hmm. So it's if anyone could you know uh, see inside that mental state through the poem, right? If if Charles Olson is right in that you. A poem is just the kinetic energy that you pick up from the world somewhere and you transfer it to another person's mind by way of the poem itself. That's a cool thesis. Right? I've never heard yeah. of that. <laughs> then, then this was a way to represent my mental state at the time mm-hmm. and then have it, have it sort of um, tip off the reader to, that, to the fact that that might be what's going on by putting in the line at the end, the lines at the end about... Um, using mirror neurons as ways of duplicating mental states. That kinetic thesis, the kinetic energy thesis is largely how I view poetry. You know, a lot of times it is just this 
ineffable sense of beauty. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very unique, as you say, to the conglomeration of forces that have conspired to produce whatever mindset you're in, right? Mm-hmm. So, and so it's, you can never experience that particular aesthetic feeling again because you know that aesthetic feeling is radically contingent upon uh, these present factors that are making up your life. Mm-hmm. So you just want to, you don't want to let that go. You want to eternalize it. And writing poetry is the act of eternalizing life, which is just always fleeting. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. That's a good way to put it. But there are certain feelings that you can replicate and they have the same phenomenal quality. Like if I'm having an orgasm, like usually it's the same feeling mm-hmm. every time. You mm-hmm. know, it doesn't really, do, it doesn't matter what my mindset is going yeah. into it. It's usually, it's pretty much the same feeling. Now there are right. degrees of intensity, of course, right. but it's the same basic feeling. With poetic feelings or aesthetic feelings, they're not like that. You know, they mm-hmm. are different in the sense that they can't be replicated. They're contingent upon and all these things. And often when we chase the, a particular feeling and try to reproduce it, right? We, we fail miserably. Yeah, we fail. Yeah. So instead of trying to reproduce it, try to eternalize it by creating art or capturing it. Yeah. And you know, to the extent that you achieve that is right, right. Yeah. Um, so I guess this is a more meta question about the book that I should have probably let off with. But is there, you know, so you talked about how this book largely involved you making sense of these philosophical questions about the self. And that's intermingled with the project of the book. But is there a more general theme that's connecting all these poems? No, not certain? really. Um, I mean, there, there not are, that there needs to be. I'm just curious. I think that there are maybe family resemblances between the poems, um, to use Wittgenstein's phrase. Right, there are ways in which the poems all seem to share some. There, there's no one characteristic that all of these poems have, or there's no one aim that all of these poems have, right. but there are overlapping aims and overlapping um, characteristics, overlapping strategies, overlapping uh, rhythms that might appear in multiple poems. There's certainly a repetition of certain words that give you an indication as to the kinds of things I was thinking about at the time. Uh, lots of these places, lots of these poems revolve around industrial settings that either still exist in what have grown up around, like residential areas that have grown up around them, or industrial yeah. settings that no longer exist, but the, but the buildings still exist. So the, whatever, whatever industry was, was you know, the demand for the factory, that industry has since left, but the factory is still there. It might be an empty factory, might be an empty power plant that's still there in the middle of this residential neighborhood and it might just be this hulking mass of ugly metal and, and broken windows for most people and what I was trying to do with the book by talking about um, this loss of self um, loss of the sense of self the, the more I was engaged in the study of Buddhism um, but also a loss of sense of self the more th- thinking about um, a national sense of self and that as we lose industry in this country and especially as we export it overseas um, that we lose a sense of self identity in, in an economic sense um, and I was living in a place where there was a variety of industries I'd never lived around before having grown up on the east coast especially in towns with um, former industries that had left those towns and, and there were lots of abandoned and closed factories 
especially textile factories, and then moving to California where there's just this incredible agricultural production um, that's addressing so many of the nation's food needs, all from a very narrow strip of land. And just the intensity of that agriculture was, was amazing to me. Um, go down to Oakland and just the, the giant ports of Oakland that are just constantly importing um, container ships, you know, unloading container ships on those giant gantry cranes. Uh, and then the tech industry of San Francisco and Silicon Valley um, all there together. So I was around a lot of industries, both new and old, that were fascinating to me. And part of the book revolves around um, poems set in or responding to those, those industrial and economic settings mixed with explorations of the self and figuring out um, sort of these unanswered philosophical problems about the self. Damn. <laughs> that's, a, that's a cool analysis. Um, yeah, like that idea of connecting the personal loss of self with the national loss of self is cool. Willimantic, the town I live in, really has that aesthetic of a once thriving town that's kind of fallen by the wayside. It has the aesthetic of a town that used to have a, a strong sense of, of self yeah. that has yeah. lost it now. Yeah. I need to spend more time in Willimantic. It's a nice town. I don't want to shit on it. Like, it is a nice town. Yeah. There, are, like, if there are a lot of beautiful parks in the vicinity there, too. Like, there are in Durham. But yeah. you definitely get that sense just um, yeah. driving through it. And inhabitants will tell you that. Like, I've talked to a lot of people who have lived there for however many years. I forget what the main thriving industry was. I think there was something. It might have been a mill or something like that. I forget. I think it was thread, uh, right? Didn't they produce threads? Yeah. That's why the, the, the bridge... Um, where 32 meets 116, right? Uh, the Frog Bridge. The Frog Bridge. That's like right where I live. Okay. With like two buildings adjacent to it. I've heard anyway, this may just be local lore, that the, uh, the fact that the frogs are sitting on top of spools of thread is supposed to be symbolic of how it was a, mm. there were thread mills. Um, I don't like think I've along, heard that. Along the river there. Cool. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good story, even if it isn't. <laughs> yeah. No. It's a cool bridge. And there's some, I don't know what the frog thing is, what the what they represent, because they're everywhere in Wilmantic. If you walk around Main Town, there are frog statues everywhere. <laughs> I, need to fi- I need to find that out. Like, yeah, yo, what's up with the frog fetish <laughs> that about? everyone has around here? <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe two more poems? Sure. The next one is Unsupposed to Rain on Bellano on page 35. Unsupposed to rain in Bellano. Raindrop, tear, drip. To see a drop is to see every drop. But no storm is like any other. Water is water is water. But every drop's reason from hurling itself from the sky is its own. A word has a place in a story. It's reason for hurling itself at the reader. To read a book, one reads every book. Rain flooded pineapple fields in Accra. Turned cobblestone Avenida. Antonio Jose de Sucro in Quito into river. Fell soft, asynchronous, out of time in Davis. Grade the green mountain next to my pitched tent on this Appalachian granite dome, vulnerable and unmoving. Once one book has been read, all books have been read, Bellano said. Every storm a word, every raindrop a book. 
Yeah, so I just, I, I guess my reason for choosing this one would be that I just really liked the analogy that you're making between the book quote and the rain. And I thought that was a really cool idea. And in particular, this line at the beginning, or this phrase, water is water is water, but every drop's reason from hurling itself from the sky is its own. I thought that was really cool. And I like the way that you connected it with the idea that to read a book, one reads every book. So, Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, there was a period of time, I, I, I tend to do this with authors. I get fascinated, I read a book by an author. I really like that that book and then I'll just say I want to read another by that author and then if I enjoy the second book then I say okay I'm going to read every book this author's ever written and I just sort of get obsessed like that um, and Bologna was one of those authors where um, I I read uh, what did I read first Por uh, Noche in Chile By Night in Chile so who is Bologna? so Roberto Bologna is a, a Chilean author who uh, was exiled during the Pinochet regime and grew up like in his teenage years and 20s in Mexico, mainly in Mexico City, and then spent some time in Europe and um, eventually achieved some level of, of fame and income for his writing, uh, and, but then died an early death from, from liver complications, as far as I understand. Um, and he writes, I guess, what could be called postmodern literature, kind of expansive world, um, border-crossing literature where the stories take place in a variety of settings. And he was one of those authors where I, I read a couple of his books and I just said, damn, this guy is writing some amazing literature. I'm going to read everything he's ever written. And, just, and you did. And I did. And I mean... <laughs> I've read a few in Spanish that haven't been translated yet in English, but not all of those because that takes me so much longer um, to do that. Damn, so you I'm even still, read the ones in Spanish? Some of them, but I, I'm, really I, I, read, I read really slowly in Spanish, <laughs> so I'm still waiting on some of those to be translated into into English. Are you fluent in Spanish? Oh, no, by no means at all. Okay. Um, but now that really indicates that you're obsessed. But I love reading his stuff. Uh, he just... Yeah. And then... So at some point, either in an interview with him, um, it's probably in an interview, he, he has this line, once one book has been read, all books have been, have been read. It's a great line. That just resonated with me. <laughs> to the point where it, it just became one of those, um, you know, like a Zen koan, where you just, you get, you get fixated on, on an idea and you just, you know, think yeah. about it and think about it and think about it and think about it. Put it aside for a while. Come back to it. Think about it. Think about it. Think about you it. You have to put it aside. You have to put it aside. <laughs> you have to. That's what I'm learning. Uh, and uh, so I'd say there are about ten years passed between reading that line and then writing this poem. This poem is trying to represent what sense I made of you know of reading that line and trying to make some sense of what he what he means when he claims that once you've read one book, then you've read all books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more complicated than just you know the the combinatorial process of once you know every letter in the alphabet, then you know every word that there could be in every sentence that or every work of literature that could ever be written. Mm. I think that you know that's sort of the level one reading of, of what he might be saying there. But the poem is trying to represent something beyond that. Right. If you've read reading. one book, then you've you're presumably acquainted with all the letters of the English alphabet, so you've in a sense read every other book because right. 
every other book is going to contain those letters so you can make sense of it. Yeah. Right. But you can go deeper. Right. <laughs> right. Obviously. Right. That interpretation never even suggested itself to me in my mind. Oh, it's a cool good. interpretation. Yeah. But again, I think the analogy with the rain is really cool. I like that a lot. All books have been read. Every storm a word, every raindrop a book. That, I think that also um, presented itself because I was living in a place where it didn't rain. Uh, so living in Central Valley, California during a period of uh, two years long drought, it just it didn't rain for two years. And I think um, while on the one hand you might say before you've lived in a place like that, yeah, I could get used to blue sky every day. <laughs> Yeah, and pretty even temperatures. Uh, on the other hand, it gets maddening after a while. Yeah, uh, and you you miss the rain, especially if like me, you've grown up on the East Coast and you want a rainy day. Yeah, I love the rain. Yeah, I like falling asleep to the rain. Right. So um, part of that came from. And just the final two lines: every storm a word, every raindrop a book. You would think that the word would be analogized with the raindrop, and a book would be analogized with a storm. But you're switching that. That was cool. <laughs> All right. On to the last one. Um, sorry, one sec. What's the last one I got here? Oh, yeah. Um, Coastal Plains? Uh, yeah, 28, I believe. We didn't do that one yet, did we? I don't no. Think so. All right. Coastal Plains. By Philip Barron. Is that the right one? Yeah. Coastal Plains. Okay. Oh, this really connects with the title. This will be a good one to end off on, actually, because it really connects with the title of your book. Coastal Plains, The Problem of Representation. Headlights turn road's breath, a thing, a mile between our afternoon storm, and follow restless white down to the creek. August unspools thread, its sandbar pulled apart by waves pushed up somewhere else. Water holds pines to land, people to pines, ideas to people. Where there is water, it is safe to burn. Imperial dandelion from boot tread abroad, whose seeds spread soft as a harbinger of terrible equality, of destination, of children who know Dale and Croft and Glen from billboards. What can lawn carry between Cape Cods for rent? The bounty of so much water. What comes from a thing? and not the thing itself. So, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you reference the name of, or the name of the book comes from this poem. Why did you choose that? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think this speaks to how sometimes um, for me anyway, I have to write something down before I really understand what I mean by it. So I think that that itself is a reason to think that the intentional fallacy has got to be right, that we don't sit down and, and intend to produce uh, works of art, or at least not everybody does. Um, the intentions become clear in the process of actually producing the work of art. That and intentions often become clear only after the work of art has been produced mm. later on after it's completed. Um, right, you look back and you're like, oh, that's why I was writing it. Exactly. I wasn't, it was subconscious at the time, but now I understand. Right. Um, and 
Um, so at the, at the time, like I said, I was teaching classes in uh, philosophy at, at Woodland Community College, and at um, and in those classes, I was always teaching the the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic value. Mm-hmm. Is sort of basic part of any introductory ethics class right and because that's a useful distinction and students really got used to it and um, really liked you know learning that level of analysis and then they could start applying it out to everything in the world yeah and one way to put the idea of uh, extrinsic value is that you're talking you're you're valuing what comes from a thing and you're not valuing the thing itself Mm. Uh, and so this poem is shaped by a lot of thinking at the time about extrinsic thinking, ex- economic thinking, uh, valuing land only for its economic value, valuing land only in terms of what we can grow with it, what we can do with it, what we can build on it, uh, valuing the natural environment only for its products and not for the environment itself. Right. Um, and then thinking about, too, just, again, there's always a, a personal element in, in some of these that's mixed in with a more conceptual thinking. Uh, and the personal element has to do with, again, living in a place where, where it was a place of drought, where wildfires were the main concerns uh, from year to year in this part of California. And how that was so unusual to me because I grew up in a place where it rained every other day. <laughs> and the idea of a wildfire just seemed bizarre. Uh, we were more concerned with flooding or we were more concerned with, you know, hurricane season mm-hmm. than we were with wildfire season. And right. thinking about, in both of those cases, um, where we value the land only when it's time to fear it or only when it's time to do something with it again we're valuing the land f- only for what comes from it uh, instead of valuing the land intrinsically itself. and i think that a lot of the 20th and 21st century capitalism encourages us to think in exactly that way that for we, sure. we value all, we value the land especially only in extrinsic terms and that instead we we lose something in that we lose some connection to the land we lose some connection to the place where we are uh, the place where we're from if all we think of it is just in terms of the the neighborhoods that can be built the the shopping centers that we can visit the the places that can be built out of and on top of the natural resources that are there yeah this is I'm connecting pieces in my mind now because this is related to the quasi overarching theme that you were discussing earlier regarding the loss of a national self. So it's not valuing the land intrinsically, but only valuing it, only valuing it extrinsically might be connected with this process of us as a nation losing our sense of identity as the forces of capitalism. Absolutely. Eradicate the environment and all that. So it actually, it makes sense that you would choose that as the title, given what you said about what the overarching theme is, if there is an overarching theme. Again, I'm just connecting pieces in my mind. (laughs) No, that's great. I think you're you're right about that. Uh, Right? There's this connection there. Yeah. And and this is certainly one of those cases where um, it's not 
done as much as it's abandoned. So hmm. had I had three more days, the title probably the title of the book probably would have changed three more times. Uh, but were you this, under a deadline? This was the title that I settled on on the day when the editor told me that the book was due and I couldn't make any more changes. So that's the title of the book. I like it. I think it's a good title. And it, yeah, it definitely does. It just clicked with me. Um, okay. Any other departing thoughts on the poem or any particular poem that you're dying to read or anything like that? No, you've done a great job um, with the readings. It's fun to revisit this. I mean, this book was published, what, three, three years ago now. Three years ago. And most of the poems were written well before that. So it's, mm-hmm. been, it's fun to revisit this. Are you seeing ways that you can make them better just in looking at it right now? Uh, I'm trying not to. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Right. But absolutely. Things never change. You'll sure. be stuck in the past. We have to drag yeah. you back. <laughs> right. Come back to the present. That's right. <laughs> I thought we could end just by uh, discussing. So I read your the new chapbook that you sent me as well. I thought yeah. you just say a few words about the vision behind that. And then just talk about what kind of poetry you're writing nowadays what your next poetic projects on the horizon are, and also what the next step is for your dissertation. So just kind of departing thoughts as we direct our attention towards the future and away from the past. Sure. (laughs) Um, I think I'll take those in reverse order. Sure. Um, Next move for the dissertation, like I've already said, has got to be um, giving some account of of why I think poems have meanings at all, but also um, opening up the scope wider and thinking about how Meaning is not the only thing that's worth uh, investigating about poems, even philosophically. So um, instead, focusing on interpretation that goes beyond uh, just figuring out the the meaning of a poem. Mm. In terms of new new poetry that I'm working on now, again, I I get obsessed with things and then work work that obsession out through writing something or other. And... um, I got obsessed with the uh, the painting Las Meninas by Diego Velasquez. Oh, I know that one. I actually wrote a. I, that's so funny. I wrote a short paper on that really? for an art history class that I took in college. Okay. I forget what my thesis I'm was. I'm gonna need to read that paper. So no, actually, I'll send it to you. Please. Oh no, I don't think it's any good, but I'll send it to you. So I got obsessed with that painting a few years ago, 2015, and um, yeah, and I've been writing poems about it ever since. Describe yeah. the describe the painting. For the listeners. So it's a... uh, Las Meninas. 1656. You want to pull it up? Yeah, just for Um, the listeners. Sure. 1656, I think, um, by Diego Velasquez. He was um, the official court painter of the the king and queen of of Spain at the time. This would have been who? King Charles and... um, Yeah, King Charles V, I think. At the time, and one of the Charleses, one of the Charleses, <laughs> um, and Mariana of Austria uh, was the queen, and so this is a painting. Well, there are very strict rules about being a court painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the rules is that when you paint any members of the royal family, you cannot include anybody who is not a member of the royal family also in the painting. So the royal family has to always be depicted in their own paintings. So the king and queen could be in a painting with their daughter, the princess, mm-hmm. but they could not be in a painting with other common people. Can't be seen with any peasants. Exactly. 
And so this is a painting that violates those rules. Uh, the centerpiece of the painting is the princess. Um, and she's surrounded by her uh, attendants, the, the people who took care of her on a day-to-day -day basis. These are the meninas, or handmaidens. Mm. Uh, and then there's also one of the two of the court jesters. There's a, a royal dog in the room. There's somebody standing way at the back of the painting yeah. in a doorway, kind of a shadowy figure. We're not exactly sure who that is. And then there's Diego Velasquez himself, the painter. And what he's standing in front of is a canvas up on an easel where he's in the act of painting. Yeah. The, our, from the point of view of the viewer of the painting, you're, you cannot see what it is that he's painting, so you don't know. Is he painting the, the very painting that we're looking at, or is he painting something else? It's very meta, very meta painting. Right. It is absolutely a meta painting, yeah. which I think is probably why I got so obsessed with it. And then all around the room that they're in, it's supposed to represent the artist's studio. There are other paintings done, uh, studies that he had done of works of other painters, especially on a visit to Italy. And... At the very back wall, the brightest, what hangs on the wall and appears to be a painting at first is a very uh, bright version of a particular work. And then critics have argued that if you study the painting long enough, you'll realize it's not actually a painting at all, but it's a mirror that's hanging on the back wall of the room. And in that mirror, you can see the image of the king and queen. Uh, and so putting their image in the mirror is one way in which he violates but also subverts the rules of not depicting their likeness in the presence of any anybody else who's not a member of the royal family. And how does he subvert it? Just because well, they technically are in their not, own little... It's not actually them, right? It's, 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 it's their, their reflection. Their reflection. They're technically not in the painting, but right. they are in the painting. Exactly. Yeah. The painting is further problematic because if you're standing in front of the painting looking at it, then whatever's on a mirror on the far wall should be your reflection. Hmm. But of course, the painting doesn't work that way. But what that makes you suppose is that is the, is the, is Diego Velasquez, the painter, trying to make you see what it would look like to be the king and queen as you look at the painting. So are you, do you become who is reflected in the mirror at the back wall of the painting? In other words, does he, does he elevate any reader to royalty? Oh, <laughs> so the point of view of the person who's witnessing the painting might be the point of view of the king and queen, given the way the painting is constructed, exactly. which suggests that he's analogizing the person who's viewing it to the king and queen. Exactly. Which means that I'm royalty. Yeah, right. That's, I haven't heard. So it's a fascinating painting. Yeah. Um, Anyone listening should look this up. Las Meninas by Diego Velasquez. Velasquez. Velasquez, yeah. So you've been writing a ton of poems. So I've been writing a ton of poems, and they're all titled Las Meninas. <laughs> That's a cool chapbook idea. I don't know how many idea. I'm going to do. <laughs> That's a cool chapbook um, idea. A little chapbook on that? All of the same. All of the, Yeah, all in that painting. Right. It's a cool project. So uh, we'll see. Uh, it's been something I've been working on for a few years. and Oh, uh, a few years? This has been a, an ongoing project. Ongoing project, and mainly interrupted by things like graduate school. So right. <laughs> Everything's on. interrupted by graduate school. <laughs> right. Uh, it's cool. But, uh, so that's what I'm working on now. And then this this odd little quirky chat book, uh, Brightleaf, came out of learning about the Ulipo movement. So mm -hmm. Ulipo is a movement of poetry that began in the mid-20th century. It takes as its premise uh, if 
modernism was the throwing off of all of the forms of traditional poetry. We don't write sonnets anymore. We don't write hustles anymore. We don't write haiku anymore. You're free. You're free. You're you, free to write what you want. Exactly. You write whatever Freedom. you want. Whatever you want. <laughs> so Ulipo asks the question, um, can we invent new forms and just mm. make them as weird and bizarre forms as you want and yeah. then write poems that, that make sense of those forms? Uh, it, Ulipo began in France. It's a French acronym. I don't speak enough French to tell you what the, what the O-U-L-I-P-O stands for. Um, but it was a combination of mathematicians and engineers and poets kind of coming together to say, can we use weird, bizarre mathematical principles as the basis for, for creating new forms of poetry? Going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, combining different fields of study, exactly. seeing what happens. Exactly. It's always productive when you it is, combine yeah. different fields of study. Um, so the I took the rule from, or I took the idea from Ulipo that you should just invent your own form, but then stick with it uh, and make that form as constraining as possible. Uh, and so the form of that the poems take here is that every poem has a title. The title has to come from something related to Durham, North Carolina, a place where I spent about living about nine years and got really interested in the history of Durham. So every title then has a certain number of letters in it. And the letters that appear in the title define what letters you can use to construct the poem. I can repeat the number of times that I use a certain letter, but I can use only the letters that appear in the title. So for example, um, roll your own and save your role has an R, an O, an L, a Y, a U, a W, an N, and an S. Those are the only letters that I would allow myself to use to write the rest of the poem. How did you choose the titles? Is that just, it's not like each title has all 26 letters of the alphabet. No, right, right. Oh, I can only use the letters in the title. <laughs> just happens to be <laughs> a really long title. Um, so the titles have to be related to something about the history of, of Durham, North Carolina. And so Roll Your Own mm. and Save Your Roll is a, um, an advertising slogan that they used to use to advertise tobacco. Mm. Durham's claim to fame before... Duke University and uh, Research Triangle Park and places like that was tobacco production. Mm. Uh, it's the place where Lucky Strike cigarettes are from. It's the place where Chesterfield cigarettes are from. And before that, it was a place known for bright leaf tobacco. And bright leaf tobacco is just a particular strain of tobacco that grows really well in the sandy soil of the Piedmont region of North Carolina. Hence and the name of the chapbook, Bright Leaf. Exactly. And when you're in Durham, Brightleaf is a is a name of places that's all over the all over Durham. So there's Brightleaf Square, there's Brightleaf Plaza, there's. Um, I feel like I definitely saw it around. Now that you say it, when, when right. I was in Durham this summer. Yeah, you probably you know had a, had a coffee at uh, Brightleaf Square at some point. Yeah. Some good cafes in there. So each one of the titles is related to the history of Durham in some way, mm-hmm. and then um, trying to make the. The titles as short as possible makes the challenge for me even greater to come up with right. poems that have something to do with um, the title or the history of, of Durham in general that uses only those letters. Yeah, you're you're cutting out some work for yourself. 
as an artist by implementing this particular structure. It's been fun. I mean, it produces yeah. these really small poems. Uh, the original idea was that there were going to be 20 of them because there were 20 cigarettes in a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes. Mm, I like that. And that each poem would be small enough to write on the um, cigarette paper for a Lucky Strike cigarette. Ooh. Uh, so they're all tiny, you know, uh, very brief poems. And the chapbook is done, the, meaning the poems are done. I'm still researching like historical images that, that just complement the poems well. Wow. Yeah, because that was another thing. Each poem is accompanied by a particular image. That's actually why I decided not. Well, just be. Also, I decided not to read poems from that chapbook mm-hmm. on the podcast. One, because as you say, they're very short. And two, to really get the full experience of the poem, I feel like you need to see the image that you juxtapose the poem with. Yeah, that's fair. And I'm still finding some of those images. I haven't found um, all of the ones that I need. Yeah. But it's done. So you're going to try to get it published? Or do you have... Yeah. <clears throat> so it, it's finished except for finding the images that go along with some of the poems. Some of them, like Golden Belt, still needs an image. Mm-hmm. Um, United States versus American Tobacco Company still needs an image. And finding the image that goes along with the poem or that corresponds with the poem nicely, that itself is an artistic enterprise. This is something that I've learned just in doing this podcast as well. Things that I didn't consider art before the pod, doing this podcast, I now realize are a kind of art, like audio editing, for example. Absolutely, yeah. I, I did this one podcast called The OBX Chronicles where it just detailed the conversations I had with my siblings over the course of a week at this beach house that we rented. We were on a vacation at Cape Hatteras in August. Yeah. <clears throat> and we recorded hours and hours of stuff, so I really had to audio edit and choose the best conversations, right? right? right. And you know, normally I was just taking full-length conversations like this, putting the intro music and the outro music. There's not a lot of editing. There's not a lot of creative decisions to make. But when you're actually doing the audio editing like that, it's a kind of art, you know? Each each decision that you make is an aesthetic decision. Absolutely. And, and the same is true like when I advertise this on Twitter or Facebook, a lot of times I'll, I'll have a picture accompanying it. I've started doing that. And it's the same process, choosing what picture best right. goes or corresponds with the content of the podcast. And that itself is an artistic enterprise. Sure, because in any selection that you make helps frame the reader's or listener's understanding of whatever it is that you're, you're matching that selection with. So selecting the audio that you're going to use, selecting the image that you're going to pair with the audio helps frame, you know, for the readers what this conversation might be about. Um, selecting the yeah. uh, the image that goes along with the, the text of these poems. I think you're right. Uh, maybe I need to be more careful about which images I'm selecting. Um, and it's especially crucial just in terms of grabbing the viewer's attention because especially in nowadays age, you know, people online, if you're trying to advertise your poems or my podcast, they're not going to read a really lengthy description that right. you give of the content of the podcast. No, yeah. they might see a cool picture and say, oh, that seems cool. I'm going to click on it. Right. So that might arguably be the most crucial decision that you're making in terms of your advertising sure. ambitions. Good point. I feel like so much of marketing and branding and advertising is just so important. Yeah. Right, like creating a high quality product, that's only like 20% of it. That's absolutely essential and crucial. But if you're trying to actually make an influence, right. then 
your branding and advertising strategy is huge. And Absolutely. sometimes if you have a really good branding or advertising strategy, you can make a difference even if your product isn't of a high quality. You can create the illusion Absolutely. that your product is of a high quality because you're so good at Absolutely. advertising. Yeah. But yeah, the competition for attention these days is brutal. Yeah, exactly. In the age of Netflix. <laughs> and just yeah. in the age where anyone can create content yeah. because everyone has a phone. Exactly. You know, so like, oh, okay, I'm creating a podcast. Everyone has a podcast. You know, <laughs> what, what am I going to do to make mine different? What am yeah. I going to do to make people actually listen? Yeah, I don't know. So figuring that out. But yeah, you have, yeah. To, set, you have, to, make sure you're, you have to make sure that your content is different. It has to be separate from what other people are doing in today's information economy. Yeah. How do you make sure yours is different? Well, I don't know. I haven't really... I mean, like... A lot of like a lot of this I've just learned from doing the podcast, like the importance of advertising and branding, and I kind of knew that going in. I tried to get a good um, what's it called, just logo for the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. To be honest, my motivation, like I want to people, I want to gain a following, and I want people to listen to the podcast. But the main motivation for me in starting it mm -hmm. has to go back with what we were talking about about capturing moments, capturing fleeting, beautiful moments. That's the main motivation for me. It's a kind of personal audio journal that details my life. I found myself having all of these amazing conversations with yeah. people. And I said, you know, sometimes the, the greatest insights that you have in life are those that just arise over the course of an organic conversation. Absolutely. And I want to capture that, you know, and that itself can be a kind of art, just eternalizing this conversation that we've had. That's the main goal. Gaining a following is kind of secondary. Sure. You know? And just like we've been talking about with all the artworks and cultural productions and, and even doing philosophy a lot of times, we can set out with certain intentions thinking that yeah. the conversation is going to go one way, right? And then only later on do you realize, oh, really, the point was to get to this part of the conversation or the point was to get to... What this was all leading up to was to, to bring out this crucial point that we had no idea was going to emerge. Yeah, and that's why I emphasized on letting the conversation unfold organically. Right. Approaching these podcasts like an interview yeah. can, you can just unnecessarily constrain the natural flow of the conversation. If the conversation is going some way, and you, you, maybe you should let it go that way. Right. You don't need to ask the next question that I have. Okay, let me cut you off prematurely <laughs> so we can get to the next thing. Yeah. Like that's yeah. the whole beauty of podcasts. There yeah. is no, you're not, you know, in mainstream media, you have this very narrow time slot right. that you're constrained by. And that constraint makes the conversation less authentic mm -hmm. because you're operating within that constraint. But on podcasts like this, we can take as much time as we want. Right. We can be here all damn night right. if that's how long it takes to get right. to that point that you're talking about in the conversation. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. we, you know, so you let, let us get to that point naturally. But I appreciate that structure. Um, I'm trying to be better at it. No, when, when you said, you know, beginning, I don't remember if the mic was on or, or, or yet at this point. I don't think it was. Um, you know, just talking about how you're aiming at having more organic conversations. And I think that's... Yeah. It's more enjoyable um, for, you know, for the, the person you're having the conversation with to do it that way. Mm -hmm. But it's also more enjoyable to me when you, when you listen to these uh, conversations because it, it sounds more authentic. Like you said, it sounds, it's more of a regular sort of conversation yeah. that has some, some insights along the way. Uh, it's not, 
something that feels packaged in the same way that a, a news interview would be. And that was the whole motivation for doing the podcast, as I just said, to capture those organic conversations. Yeah. So when I started approaching him like interviews, I'm like, wait, whoa, whoa, what are you doing, man? This is antithetical because I'm trying to be all professional. Yeah. Like this is antithetical to the whole reason why you're doing this. Yeah. And that's not to say that you shouldn't be prepared. Like I want to be prepared. I want to read all your stuff and. uh, You're doing a great job. Make sure that I can engage with it. But yeah, so it's it's finding a balance, you know, Um, and sometimes you have to be mindful of the fact that it's a podcast because I'm, you know, we're talking about something and the conversation is, is unfolding organically, but I realize, oh, the listeners probably don't know what we're talking <laughs> right. about. So you have right. to be aware of that sometimes, right. but you pick your moments. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've tried to do that in the course of this conversation. It's um, been fun. Anything else that you're dying to get out to the world? No, I thanks think, for the opportunity to do this. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I, I had a great time uh, reading all your stuff. Honestly, I mean that. It's hard. It's hard sometimes. Like, if I actually like something that someone did, uh-huh. it's hard for me to tell them that I really liked it without <laughs> it sounding not genuine. Right. I you know. know what you they're mean. like, oh yeah, thank you, thank you. I'm like, no, 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 no. I really liked it. <laughs> Look into my eyes. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I appreciate you coming on. I will have a link to your book when I post it. Cool. Yeah, I'll send you something. Thank you for the opportunity to do this. Of course. Till next time.